Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, May the 9th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, No Shot Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Okay, we got up and running as we should have this morning, didn't we? Indeed. No Shot Josh. Um, <laughs> oh, been a little bit early. I'm giving him a hard time because nah, I understand. He's, he's critical of himself. I mean, he told me yesterday. He is. You know, and just Monday morning, but it doesn't matter. I mean, Monday's Tuesday, Wednesday's Thursday. It's a little bit of the Bob, Bobby Cox analogy. Um, you know, when they say this is a big game, he said, does it count one and a half games? You know, why is this game any bigger? I mean, it's a weekend series at the end of the season against the, the Dodgers, but why is it a bigger game than um, the one we played in Florida on a getaway day when my crowd didn't show up and weren't ready to play? Didn't that game count one just as as this game does? Yeah, I mean, every day matters. And, um, and I mean, I get it. Mondays are complicated for me, especially – in this job, because um, it's a what, what am I trying to say here? There, what is the old analogy? The the Friday news drop, you know, they drop a story on Friday afternoon yep. in anticipation it. of nobody paying any attention to it. Well, I'd be one of those not paying any attention to it. You know, it is my job to pay attention to it, but I'd be one of those guilty. But you have the beach on your mind well, on I mean, Friday it's, afternoon. It's, it's just get, kind of get away for a couple yeah. of days, you know, and charge the batteries, refresh and rejuvenate. Um, the juices. So I get it. Monday morning is a kind of a grind. Um, I'm a little bit nervous today. I don't have any Celsius and, um, Uh-oh. there's, Ooh. you know, there's no Celsius in the building as far as I know, <laughs> unless, unless the Royal Rev of radio has a stash. <laughs> I do not. Cause I thought I had a stash yeah. uh, the middle of last week <laughs> and realized I didn't have a stash. I do not. Stash. And, and actually that was the fast twitch well, uh, Gatorade. Caffeine bombs, right? Yeah. Just I mean, it, uh, that's, and the I did, energy drinks. I, I, you had talked it up so much that I said, well, I need to try one of those. And my wife had mentioned that she wanted to try some. So that's why I went, I went searching and found a it few. Went rogue. Apparently, it went I, rogue. Apparently it was your personal stash. Well, and what, I didn't have what any I idea. Hear, from what I hear, you don't drive a truck, you're a city boy, you drive a car. Mm-hmm. But from what I hear, um, it looked like you had a dead body in the back. <laughs> oh, there was yeah. so much of the fast twitch and yeah. Celsius. I, I, I piled you your home. drinks into my car. I, I never make that mistake. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, they ain't mine. It's obvious they ain't mine because if they were, anyway. So, so um, what's, what's your plan if there if there's no Celsius in the building? I, I don't know. Smoke um, weed? I don't know. I mean, we'll have to figure something out to get us going. May, may I suggest <laughs> caffeinated coffee today? At, yeah, at, at I may do o'clock. that. I may yeah. drink a cup of your um of your um highfalutin coffee. Yeah, I don't know about yeah. that. Yeah, Riff's got this highfalutin coffee. I, I, I make coffee, whatever they provide here. Uh, the, the company is very generous to provide coffee for the employees. So whatever pod is available, um, I'll take it. They really are. Two names. You ready? Jordan Neely, Daniel Penny. Who knows those names? I've heard Jordan Neely in okay. the news. The person the, who was... The uh, homeless person who was choked to death in New York. on a subway in New York City. Um, Daniel Penny is the person who choked... Jordan um, Neely out, okay. um, choked him out. I felt like an MMA fighter. I mean, he died. I mean, he died of asphyxiation and suffocation. And anyway, he was choked to death. Um, there's not been a criminal charge yet, but I was reading uh, s- some things yesterday about um, the New York governor, Kathy Hochul. She said that um, that Neely died just for being a passenger on the subway, suggested it was very clear he was not going to, you know, um, cause harm to these people. Her exact quote, um, the Guardian, you would imagine a left-leaning uh, publication, said that he was a beloved Michael Jackson impersonator. So the media narrative is, you know, this, um, and I do believe he's probably, 
I mean, it's just one of his family members said they always were concerned about his um, schizophrenic behavior, um, the fact that he was indeed mentally ill. All I know is this, schizophrenic, mental illness, I don't know. I mean, there's not been uh, a report of a thorough evaluation going there, but he'd been arrested 42 times, including four times for assault. At the time of his death, Neely had an active warrant for allegedly assaulting a 67-year-old woman in 2021. Um, He was arrested in August 2015 for attempted kidnapping um, a 70-year-old girl. Uh, One of these inward streets in New York City, he was seen dragging a 70-year-old child. Um, He was arrested again in June 2019 for punching a 64-year-old man in the face during a fight in Greenwich Village, um, one of the subway stations in... uh, in Greenwich Village, and um, I mean, it's just this. For Kathy Hochul to make the comments she made is that race baiting. I mean, you've got a a black victim and a white perpetrator. Uh, I'm not saying of a crime here. I mean, there there'll, there'll be an investigation. Give Eric Adams a little credit here. The New York City Police Chief has basically said he's the mayor, isn't he? Yeah, well, the mayor. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. the New York City Mayor, former I think he's a former police chief, but he said, you know, we're not going to make comment until we get. Uh, a more assemblage of the facts. We want to make sure that we're going down the right road. But the media narrative last night, I watched a little bit of MSNBC. I read some of this in The Guardian. That's why I highlighted um, the article. New York Times is, um, once again, the beloved Michael Jackson impersonator. It's tragic. I mean, it really is. But what what responsibility? Because here we, we talk a lot about the caring of the mentally ill. I mean, you and I believe. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you've led me to believe that you think we have let the mentally ill down in America. I mean, I we've, no we, we've cut funding, uh, we've closed facilities. Um, it's, it's a bit that ah, there's a social consequence to labeling someone, uh, mentally ill. So, so if we agree that we've allowed many of the mentally ill to fall through the cracks and fend for themselves and make the, uh, the best go of it, they know how in mainstream society, what obligation do we have to the public? I mean, we talk a lot about not taking care of the mentally ill. There are people out there. that, and Once again, I have no idea um, what sort of status Jordan Neely was in. He's deceased now. So I don't know that we'll ever get the full story here. But the argument is he was a mentally ill man. Um, he was schizophrenic, a lot, lot of other issues kicking. Uh, one of his family members said he was self-medicating with a synthetic drug, K2. I don't have any idea what that is, but some synthetic drug. He was self uh, medicating with, um, but you can't dispute the fact that he's arrested 42 times. So if we're not caring for the mentally ill, what is the obligation we have to protect the general public from the mentally ill? I mean, if Jordan, let's hypothetically say that Jordan Neely didn't know any better. I mean, the 42 arrests were because he was mentally ill. The four times he assaulted someone was because he was mentally ill. I mean, is that good enough just to say he's mentally ill? I mean, you got people getting punched in the face. You got kids being um, abducted by a mentally ill man. So, so, so okay, at, at, at face value, I'll agree with you. We're not taking care of the mentally ill. But what about the people trying to get back and forth to work on the New York City subway? I mean, don't right. we have somewhat but, of an obligation? They're threatened by his actions, those well, I mean, people. Yeah, and, and, and harmed. I mean, hurt, right. not just threatened, hurt by his actions. In fact, he was, I mean, uh, Daniel Penny says the reason he intervened he felt there were people's, you know, well-being at risk. And he's kind of one of these, um, I, he's, I think he's a member of the military, but he'd been trained in hand-to-hand combat. 
So he's the likely suspect to take care of matters uh, that weren't being taken care of by law. So I mean, it's a, it's a it's a social issue. Um, you know, when I'm not saying the guy's mentally ill or not, don't have any idea. I'm not saying the guy deserved to be choked to death or not. Don't have any idea. But but certainly, I mean, the public has a right to to feel safe on a public subway, don't we? I mean, we it, should. You know, I we mean, do do we have a right to know that the person I'm sitting beside has been arrested 42 times, four times for you know, a violent crime. Assault is a pretty violent crime as far as I'm concerned. Punching a 67-year-old lady in the face. I mean, they, you know, he's been charged with that. Obviously, there won't be any... Um, well, on the bottom line, to me, is that sort of person should not be sitting next to you on the subway. Okay. Or but, walking next to you on the platform. But, but but there is a racial overtone here. I mean, you've sure. seen it, and that's where I'm headed. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they shut the subways down. Um, racial inequality... Uh, you know, if this were a black man who choked out a white man, there would be a, an incredibly different storyline here. Um, I saw a lot of the, um, tyrannical do-gooders yesterday joining the, um, you know, the black activist. I mean, that's always an interesting combination to me. Um, the tyrannical do-gooder parts their Volvo in Greenwich village and walks over to the subway station to meet the, you know, the, um, the economic, social economics of the, the reality of New York City, a lot of the minority population in New York City live beneath the, um, the what am I trying to say, the socioeconomic norm. But but the I mean, the conversation yesterday on MSNBC and CNN was a lot about, I mean, there was a social, excuse me, a, a, a racial overtone here. And I don't know if you saw this or not, but there was, a, um, th- there was an interracial violent crime incident report posted on Twitter over the weekend that Elon Musk had a lot to say about. But it was very interesting to me. I mean, Musk is a very, I mean, he's a very opinionated guy, uh, more than willing to give his opinion. But someone posted, um, and and Musk says, why doesn't the media, excuse me, why does the media misrepresent interracial crime stats uh, to such an extreme degree? So we've got, once again, Jordan Neely, uh, a black, you know, mentally ill man who'd been arrested 42 times. Um, Some of the violations were, uh, you know, uh, assaulting is a pretty violent crime and offense as far as I'm concerned. But Musk retweeted this interracial violent crime incident 2018. I don't know why it's 2018. I mean, that's interesting to me. Uh, but it is. It's 2018, not 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Don't have any idea if this is the last year of the report, if the government buried the report because it doesn't fit the narrative. I mean, you know, the. But, but here's the numbers, and I found this interesting. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. Don't have any idea if Jordan Neely um, was mentally ill. Don't have any idea if Daniel Penny was out of line in um, in addressing the issue as he did. But when when the when the tyrannical do-gooders collaborate with the African American activist, and out of that comes this a narrative about America that there's this preponderance of crime uh, of white people hurting African Americans, it's just not true. I mean, it's completely and totally inconsistent with reality. Let's go some through some stats here. You know how many white-on-black violent crimes there were in 2018? And once again, I have no idea why 2018 is the deal. But you know how many white-on-black violent crimes there were um, between, uh, I guess, January 2018, December 2018? 59,778. That's a lot. I wish it were zero. But white-on-black violent crimes in 2018, 59,778. You know how many black-on-white violent crimes there were in 2018? 547,948. Maybe that makes me a racist. I don't know. 
I mean, if reading data and statistics makes me a racist, then we live in a real screwed up world, even more screwed up than I imagine it is. Black on Hispanic, 112,365. Hispanic on white, 365,299. So between African-Americans and Hispanics, whites have been victim of violent crimes, nearly a million. I mean, it's about 900,000, a little better, really about 925,000. Hispanic on black, 44,551. White on Hispanic, 207,104. But on the on the graph, I mean, the black on white violent crimes happen at a far greater percentage and rate. The Hispanic on white crimes, so whites are far more likely to be victimized by by violent crime than Hispanics or African Americans. Where's the media reporting this? I mean, if African Americans make up thirteen percent of the population in this country, and and you know uh, white people are victimized by African American violence to the tune of over a half million uh, every year, there's a disproportionality here. And and I think the majority of people, I mean, I'm a little bit crazy, but the majority of people aren't crazy enough to go down that road because you'll be called a, a racist. And, and you know what you don't get to do if you ever identified and labeled a racist? You don't get to play this game anymore. I mean, you'll get deplatformed. Yeah. You'll get censored. True. You'll get fired. You'll lose your job, your credentials. And I got to believe, I mean, Musk is in a place he can comment about anything. I mean, he's got multiple billions of dollars, whether Tesla uh, revolutionized the auto industry or not, so whether SpaceX puts a man on the moon or not, Musk will be okay. So he's very liberated in giving his opinion, and he's very opinionated, and he's very bright. And, um, and I think for him to repost this legitimizes a, a much-needed conversation that up until now most Americans have been nervous and anxious to have. And I'm not saying, hey, let's have this conversation. But once again, the mainstream narrative today in New York City is that this innocent black guy was, um, you know, victimized by a white guy who kind of been trained in some of this armed-to-armed car, hand-to-hand combat, and I mean, it, the, it was it was racist in nature. I mean, if it had been an African American guy, excuse me, if it had been a white guy, you know, here you ready, country acting up on the uh, on the subway, it would have been dealt with unbelievably different. I don't know. I don't have any idea. All I'm telling you is Jordan Neely is dead. That's tragic. Jordan Neely appears to have issues or have had issues of mental illness. That's tragic. Jordan Neely probably needed help. I mean, in all honesty, Jordan Neely probably needed some facility that treats people in his um, schizophrenic condition if his family member knows what they're talking about. But people on a New York City subway have a right to be safe. They have a right to feel safe. And when they feel threatened, God bless someone who stands up and says, you know, this person has to be dealt with accordingly. Because if Jordan, excuse me, if Daniel Penny doesn't do what he does, once again, not dismissing nor discounting the tragic nature of what happened. But if Daniel Penny doesn't intervene, does another 70-year-old person get hit in the face? Does another 65-year-old someone get thrown off the, uh, off the subway? Does, uh, you know, does uh, another child potentially get abducted? But there's no good here. But, but the people are responsible for, for, for providing law and order and safety and sanity to a city are, are, are not doing that. And it goes back to the peak of the pyramid. Who's in charge? Why do they suck? I mean, why do the people running New York City not do such a job of a good job of running New York City? I understand it's complicated. I mean, I understand it's messy. I mean, they're what, 10 million people? I mean, they're probably 11 and a half million people by the time you figure the undocumented. 
I mean, you know, we, we estimate the New York population, New York city population, somewhere between nine and 10 million people. And that's accounting for some illegal um, immigrants or illegal aliens. Let's call them what they are. Um, you know, there's some reports, conservative voices who believe that number is closer to 11 and a half million people. Well, when you become the mayor, you accept the responsibility. When you, come in, when you become the governor, you accept the responsibility. And here's how responsible the governor is. She claimed that Neely just died, died for just being a passenger on a subway. And it was very clear he was not going to, comma, you know, comma, cause harm to any of these other people. It's, it's, a, it's a touchy, testy, nasty situation. But yesterday when I saw the tyrannical do-gooders part the Volvo in Greenwich Village, uh, and walk over to some of the um, some of the protest areas to join the African American activist. It was just very enlightening to me. Okay, I get it. I mean, this is what we always anticipated to be. Don't discount or dismiss the uh, the person being killed. I mean, that that's you know. I mean, I, I don't have any idea if that was equal and opposite force. I mean, I'm not on the subway, but it's pretty obvious this guy was. You know, m- m- we we I can't diagnose mental illness. You can't diagnose mental illness. But his uh, rap sheet says he'd been arrested 42 times, including four times for assault. That That's a fact. Now, now, how much of that is attributed to mental illness? How much it is mean and crazy? How much is the society um, convincing him he's owed some debt that he's not being repaid um, proportionally? Don't have any idea. Can't get in the head. And we'll never get in the head of, um, of Jordan Neely ever again. But Daniel Penny, I mean, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll be, I mean, he'll be the poster child of white on black crime and you know an innocent michael jackson impersonator who was it that called him that that was the guardian called him an innocent michael no excuse me a beloved michael jackson street impersonator their words not mine um kind and talented um despite others attempts to portray him as dangerous and violent well i'm gonna ask the 67 year old woman ask the 65 year old man ask the seven year old kid was he um kind and talented or was he dangerous and violent? The rap sheet says he was dangerous and violent. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments and with our first call on the other side. 843-661-0937 or number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Don in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, I wanted to kind of give some comments about the uh, Neely Penny situation. Uh, as a retired Marine, I dealt with the uh, government focus. Uh, when it came to cases such as this, and I wanted to kind of uh, uh, elaborate on the fact that the government is, has a very purposeful decision to create the oppressed and the victimhood. My, my point to this is, uh, while in the military, and Mr. Penny may have been subject to this himself, um, it was a guilty until proven innocent, especially when it came to equal opportunity cases, uh, sexual assault cases, sexual harassment, um, that the, the belief was if you felt threatened, if you felt assaulted, if you felt uh, uh, hindered in any shape or way, your perception was real and therefore factual, uh, regardless of the facts. And then the facts had to disprove that. Um, the same case on the subway, you know, but it's plain reversed because uh, in the case of Mr. Penny and the rest of the folks there, we're discarding how they may have felt at the time. But uh, in the cases, again, as I said, in the military and the government's doing this, if you are of a certain race, a certain gender, certain uh, sexual orientation, they're able to spin that to make it where it fits their narrative. And my concern for this is even beyond the race situation is 
the political situation because creating an oppressed uh, class is exactly what the Communist Manifesto is all about, is if we can create a, an oppressed class, if we can identify them as always being the victim, then the rise up of that class is exactly what I see the Democratic Party and the left doing. And the more they can play that out from a very simple uh, incident such as the Neely Penny case, each time it adds to uh, their layer of creating this oppressed class, which is exactly what they want to make. And again, it's a story. Because we're not looking at facts. We just automatically say white man, white woman, black man, black woman. As long as we go back, back and forth, if we create the race, we create that, that, that victimhood, then it fits very cleanly in our narrative. And like I said, I saw this in my 20 years in the military, uh, especially the last decade. Uh, what used to be back in when I first came in the 90s, it was, hey, let's figure out the facts and figure out the, the truth. By the time I was in the, late two, or the uh, early 2000s to the 20-teens, it was, no, there's a victim, there's guilt here, now the only way you're going to have innocence is providing the facts. And I think that is a very concerted and conscious uh, effort uh, by the left, by politicians, etc. So I just want to kind of add that as my, my two, two cents to this situation. Thank very you. helpful. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, that's kind of interesting. And that's the angle I wanted to take, because once again, the, the, the narrative is the New York governor, Kathy Hochul, claims that he died for just being a passenger. The Seinfeld watcher will believe. I mean, I don't know if the Seinfeld watcher is that illiterate. I mean, they're they're not that gullible. I mean, they they probably say, yeah, okay. I mean, there's more to that than just that. But they're not as interested in kind of a data driven debate, a fact driven um, debate. Thirteen percent. I mean, the African Americans make up thirteen percent of the population, and they're committing sixty percent of the violent crimes. I mean, why is that not a story? How is that not a story? I mean, and I'm not trying to be racist here. I mean, it, it, facts are facts, and data's data. Uh, what do they say? Facts are stubborn things. Um, I mean, I don't think I'm racist. Been around racism in my life. I don't think I'm racist. But Tucker Carlson said something kind of interesting yesterday. I mean, I don't intentionally lie, but but I would imagine if backed into a corner and confronted with something that is very, um, you know, unsavory about me in my life, I'd probably, yeah, I mean, he'd probably do what you had to do to wiggle off, off the hook. I think accepting that about himself. So, so once again, I want to be guarded here. I mean, maybe there is some sentiment here, you know, that, that I'm not aware of or in touch with and need to be um, more diligent about it and work on and, and, and sort through. And um, but, but it does frustrate me that the, the political leadership are trying to create a political narrative that is inconsistent with the data. I mean, if, I, if I'm in a role of political leadership, I mean, to me, the, the, the only debate should be, why are so many African-Americans committing violent offenses? I mean, what, what is it? Is it the breakdown of the family? I mean, you know, um, I, I'm real careful, and I've always been real guarded about saying, if I were an African-American, you know, or, or, or if I were a member of that race or a member of that ethnicity or a member of that religion, I mean, I'm not. So it really doesn't carry any water at all to say, well, if I were one of them or if I were one of those or if I believed what they believe, then here's what I think they should do. But but once again, as a, as a guy who's lived his entire life in the business world, facts are stubborn things and and no matter i mean maybe he is a beloved michael jackson impersonator but he didn't die for simply being a passenger i mean that you know he'd been arrested 42 times he i mean four times for assault once for kidnapping um you know um a seven-year-old girl i mean he's a that's a danger and menace to society so when you take that reality that that you know that fact that truth pattern and then you correlate it with this interracial 
violent crime incident 2018, why is that not a debate in America? I mean, you're talking about oppressed and, and privileged and, you know, some of these social commentaries that we're famous for in America. Um, I think the most important question is, why is there so many crimes committed by African-Americans when they make up such a small population? Here, here would be another um, interesting factoid that I don't know the answer to. Of the 547,948 recorded, and this is the um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, victimization survey in 2018. So of the 547,948 black-on-white violent crimes, how many, how many perpetrators were there? I mean, how many people were repeat offenders? I mean, we talked about bond reform and judicial reform and you know, uh, people who are uh, committing violent acts against their fellow man and go get a $300 bond and they're back on, on the street and the next thing you know, they're doing it again. That would be very interesting to me. I mean, what percentage of the 547,948, I mean, is it 100,000 African-Americans committing these crimes? Is it 200,000 African-Americans committing these crimes? That would be an interesting number to me. I don't see uh, where that's reported anywhere. I mean, all the numbers are horrible. I mean, interracial violent crime, same race violent crime. I mean, all violent crime is bad, but the report happens to kind of um, speak to and speak about the interracial violent crime um, incident stats. And I mean, there, there's an overriding narrative here. I mean, there just is. So if Africa, excuse me, if, if whites make up, what, 66 or 8% of the population, I think it's less than 70 now. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's less than 70 now, but it's it's still in the 60s. So let's say that the white population in America is, what, five times as large as the black population in America? I mean, once again, guys, I'm not uncomfortable talking about this at all. I mean, I, I am not uncomfortable at all discussing this. Now, now, if I were a major media figure, I'd probably be careful opening this can of worms. But how do we get to a better place if we're not allowed to discuss these truths and facts right. once again i'm not saying hey you, you better be careful with black people or you better be careful with hispanic people i'm simply saying hey here are the numbers so so once again let's say that the percentage of white americans is still in the 60s and i think it is um it's it's it was over 70 for a long time we seen a decline because of the enormous hispanic population growth we've not seen a big population growth in the uh, african-american community it's been 12 13 for a pretty long time the Hispanic population is what has exploded in America. Um, but if you're one of the whites, um, let's say you're one of the 60-some-odd percent, and, I mean, the, the, the African-Americans are 13%, there's only 59,778. So whites ain't beating up blacks. I mean, they're just not. You know, the, the data shows this. Unless the African-Americans aren't turning it in, you know, unless it's not being reported, the street justice and vigilante Justice, I have no idea, uh, you know, how large a share of that data um, that is, but but the data is empirical, and when you see the story and you begin to hear the narrative and you kind of know what's coming, you you you, you kind of know, okay, here's a white guy. How many of you? Let's be honest, guys. I mean, how many of you, when you hear something happened, the the first thing you kind of sort of are curious about is the racial makeup of whatever happened. Um, the, the unfortunate and horrific events of the migrant work center where the, the guy plowed through, you know, the, uh, the migrant workers and killed, I mean, just absolutely, I mean, it's horrific. It's terrible. It's tragic. 
It's um at every level. But but you know, how many of you wanted to know is that a black guy driving the car, a white guy driving the car, Hispanic dry guy driving the car? I mean, I'd love to get to an America where we didn't care. I mean, that's where John Lennon and I are singing off the same sheet of music. I'd love to have a, a nation where it didn't matter. It's a tragedy, whether it's um Hispanics who were killed, blacks who were killed, whites who were killed, but but we have people in this country that bait us with race, that they love to you know, kind of pit one race against another race or, or one social class against another social class. Um, you know, the, the rich and poor debate has always played well in America. And I find it unfortunate that when one of these tales are told, one of these stories are, are developed, it's, it's never data-driven. It's never fact-driven. Because as part of this argument, I mean, if, I, if, you're, if a reporter's doing their job, that they say that Jordan Daly had been arrested 42 times, had a history of mental illness, and it and it really leads to a question of why so many blacks are committing acts of violence. Why do you think that's where we are in America, where the, the media, in our opinion, won't have an honest conversation that includes facts and asking these sort of questions well, I mean, I think, and addressing the really root cause of well, the issue? Well, I mean, it, it doesn't fit the narrative. I mean, the, 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 the narrative is conservative America is bad. Conservative America is largely is it, white. Is, it, is that a conservative well, I mean, point it, of view? How, how many, I mean, if, if, if white people didn't vote conservative, conservatives would never win office. So, yeah, I mean, there's this unholy alliance, unholy alliance that the African-American male has with the conservative cause. I mean, I've always believed that. I mean, I've lived that. I mean, I ran as a conservative Republican and a white male in the deep South. So, so I'm well aware of the, uh, you know, the, um, when you walk into a newsroom as a white Southern conservative male, I mean, you, you feel like, okay, um, I'm not in, I'm not in the most popular guy in this room. I mean, I, you know, I can assure you that I'm white, I'm male, I'm Southern, I'm conservative. Ain't gotten many friends in America's newsrooms. And I do believe there's a very deliberate attempt to try and spin the story to make the white Southern male conservative um, never the victim, always, um, you know, the person who is the cause for all of this. And I think the caller made a very interesting point about the oppressed class. You know, liberalism accentuates the oppressed class. Let, let's find a group of people who are socioeconomically um, challenged. Uh, you know, and, and, and maybe it's because of the educational opportunities. Maybe it's because of, you know, the rest and residue of slavery. I don't have any idea. I mean, that's a real complicated debate to go down. Um, why have the African-Americans not attained, you know, um, the degree of socioeconomic success that, that you know, that, that would be helpful for the country? I mean, it would really and truly be helpful for the country. Um, I mean, I would argue LBJ's policies probably do, probably bound more African-Americans to poverty than liberated um, from poverty. It created a generational dependence on government. And I'm not afraid to say these things because I know I'm not being a racist. I mean, I, you know, I'm being a, a kind of a fact finder. I mean, the facts are empirical. The data's there. I mean, the media may choose to not report the data because it sounds better if Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, who has a much larger responsibility than I, when she says that he died for just being a passenger on the subway. And, and a, you know, a major media publication says he was a beloved Michael Jackson impersonator and um, d despite attempts to try and portray him as dangerous and violent. I mean, you can be schizophrenic and dangerous and violent. And he was probably both. So, the, so there's a complicated debate. That, but we're not having the complicated debate. That's the point you're making. Why aren't we having these debates? 
I mean, why is the New York Times not debating uh, all of these issues? There is obviously a societal issue here that society would benefit from an honest discussion. Sure. Well, I mean, the the fundamental question where I sit today is, why is 13% of the country of the same race committing 60% of the violent crimes? I mean, how can we not be curious about that reality? But, but if somebody opens that door and goes down it, you're taking a big risk of being called a racist. And I guess it doesn't concern me to, to be called a racist. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I guess I've got something to lose here. You know, a job, a reputation, a livelihood, an audience, um, you know, a, some degree of respect and credibility. But, but I think some people out here where I am with a forum and a medium have to begin addressing these issues, not, not in a flamboyant and controversial fashion, but, but let's dig into this and let, you know, the, the fundamental question, I mean, forget George, Josh, uh, Jordan Neely and Daniel Penny for a second. Why are 13% of our population of the same race committing 60% of the violent crimes? How can that not be one of the central questions in America today? But the reason it's not a central question is because everybody's scared to death to ask that question. 843-661-0937. Take a break back in just a few moments. You know, I guess my sense of awareness allows me to be a bit liberated from the race debate because the majority of my life was spent in a locker room, in a tobacco field, or in a metal building building truck beds. And it was not about, hey, this black guy does that or this white guy. I told Rev during uh, during the break a, a second ago, I mean, how is it not racist to say, that's a fast white guy? Or that white guy fought you now. <laughs> you know, I mean, how is that not racist? But in my world, it's never been racist. It's never been offensive to me. It doesn't bother me. But but one of my black teammates would say, fast to be a white boy. <laughs> or that damn white boy, they'll fight you now. You better be careful with him. I mean, how is that not? But, but once again, I guess that's my sense of security I get in this. That would be my safety blanket. I, I grew up in a locker room, a tobacco field, and a metal building. And it was not about um, how many black people are there, how many white people are there. I don't know all of us. I don't know. <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of all in this thing together. And maybe that's rural, small-town America. You can't pull against one another because you'll get nowhere. Everybody better be pulling the same direction, white, red, black, green, Oh, that's yellow. interesting. Hey, yeah, I mean, you, yeah. You, 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 if, if everybody in my hometown wasn't pulling in the same direction, there wasn't enough of us to get anything done Anyway, and maybe that's kind of a byproduct of where I've come from and and what I believe in and what I stand for and why I'm comfortable having these sorts of conversations. I know today with young people, the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson debate, I know how uncomfortable they appear. And it doesn't make me, you know, when I would say Larry Bird's better than Magic Johnson, my black friend would say, that's because you white. (laughs) And I say, well, I mean, that's because you black. You know what I mean? And it was no... I guess it was insensitive, but we didn't intend it, nor was it accepted as insensitive. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, may, maybe Rev. That's some of the um, some of the comfort I get is having just kind of lived that life and um, and not looking at people through that lens or through that through that not allowing the government to force me to see the world a certain way. Um, and that's why you know most people don't want to talk about it. I will. Let's go to the phone. Breeze hung on through the break. Wants to finish the thought, eh, Breeze? Did Breeze say that the reason you beat white guys up is they don't fight back and nobody feels sorry for them if they do? That's kind of what he said. If they do get beat up. Have at it, Breeze. Well, yeah, well I was saying this, too, but now, I said the government does protect white people, but that's where I got cut off by the commercial. But it don't protect black people, neither. It don't protect Mexicans or Asians. The government don't protect the damn person. But then 
the government. Now, when I'm saying government, y'all got to understand, the government is everything from, from the schools to the military to everything that everybody, anything that is getting paid for by our tax dollars is the government. I would even say the hospitals that get tax dollars are part of the government. So the government is huge, but also they aren't protecting anybody. They aren't protecting anybody. The police can't protect everybody. But here's the kicker. No matter what your race at the time, if you try to even defend yourself, like if you, if you even try to defend yourself, you have as much of a chance of going to jail as the person that was trying to, trying to attack you. And we see that happen time and time again. Now, I don't know what happened in New York, you know, but you look at that Kyle Rittenhouse about God. He, yeah, he was getting jumped, and he, he, they, he had to get lawyers to get out of a murder murder if you're If you're, let's say, you know, if you're a poor black person living in New York, or you're a working-class black person, but you're, you're living in a neighborhood that's a little bit dangerous, and you say, man, I said, you know, I can, my, my family needs to be protected. So you buy you a, a shotgun or a pistol. Well, guess what you now become? A criminal. Because the government does not want us to defend ourselves. It's like they want this chaos. I said, you know, you can't defend yourself anywhere. The government does not want that. The government wants, I mean, the whole thing you can talk about for hours, but it's insidious. It really is. They want you to stand there and take a beat. If you put your hands up to defend yourself, you're now participating in a disturbance or a fight. I mean, well, they want you to turn and run. Well, if you turn and run, what happens then? They chase you down and beat you up some more. So anybody that stands up to be mugged, and let's say somebody does go to buggy downtown Charleston, I tell my clients this all the time. I said, you're better off not going down there because if somebody does try to attack you and, and you defend yourself, if you grab a stick or you have a cane or, or a knife or a gun, if you defend yourself, and downtown Charleston, which is run by a bunch of George Soros leftists, you have as much of a chance of going to jail for murder as the guy that was intended to rob, rape, or murder you. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Breeze concluding his thoughts. Somebody else is on the phone. Let's go there. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. You know, we, we don't have that problem in Lamar. Um, I learned a long time ago that when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. So we, we need to be prepared to take care of ourselves. And um, I, I'd rather be judged by 12 on a jury than carried by six in a casket. So uh, getting back to your 1350 rule, which is now migrated into the 1360 rule, I sent you a video about that this morning. And uh, I think... If everybody had an opportunity to watch that video, it would open up some eyes because there are so many deniers in the world, and our media make it so much worse. A 16-year-old boy who was black is killed by an 84-year-old white man. Now, question, what does the fact that the boy was black and the man was white have to do with what happened? Nothing whatsoever. But that's what the media tell us. They've got to make sure that we hear that point. A black man is killed by a white man. 
Well, most of the time it happens the other way around. But when it happens the other way around, we never hear about it. We're never told. When these sheriff's departments put out an APB on somebody and say, we need to get this guy, he robbed a store, stole a woman's car, ran over somebody in the parking lot, and he's a six-foot-two, medium build, wearing a hat. You, you can always tell what the race of the person is because if it's white, they'll say it, and if it's not white, they won't. That's just my thoughts. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. We've got the television arrest. We got it on, but they're stopping the subways from operating in New York City, the protest, and it's a lot of um, I mean, it's a lot of African Americans, a lot of young whites. Uh, once again, I think there's a kind of a liberal overtone here. Um, the, once again, facts are stubborn things. I mean, they, they're real stubborn things. And when I read, I mean, when Elon Musk retweeted, I mean, that, that, I'm not saying it legitimizes the data. The data legitimizes itself. I mean, the numbers are what the numbers are. And the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, Victimization Survey 2018 I mean, it's it's obvious where America is in relation to violent crimes. Um, talking about it doesn't make me a racist. I mean, it makes me somewhat of a reporter, I guess, reporting the news that media chooses to not report. Um, once again, I, I guess my comfort in talking about this is where I come from. And, and I mean, once again, I told you guys, I've been around racism a lot in my life. I don't think I've been around hatred and, and personal animus as much, but I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you know, um, society seems to silo and segregate itself, whether government intends for it to, or makes it easier or, or not. And I know when you start talking about race, it gets real controversial. And, and I would imagine the majority of people would rather keep their opinions uh, to themselves. But, but I believe the only way to have, um, you know, an, an honest debate about race is to have an honest debate about race. And if race relations are strained in America, then, then why? I mean, are we really going to trust CNN and MSNBC and, and Fox, for that matter? I mean, are we really going to trust them to tell us the story? I mean, no, they're, they're going to sensationalize and, you know, an African-American and a white man. And, you know, I mean, it, Charles is exactly right there. And, I, and I'll say this. It, it, it's, it's, it's unusual to me when uh, a crime, when, when a white commits a crime against a black, I mean, it's indisputable. I mean, you know it. Uh, you know, a 27-year-old white man killed a 35-year-old black woman or, uh, you know, a 37-year-old white law enforcement officer shot and killed, you know, a 29-year-old African-American male. But but when it's inverted, when it's the other way, you hardly ever hear, you know, a 27-year-old African-American shot and killed two white law enforcement officers in Boston last night or a, a 39-year-old black gang member, you know, murdered a 27-year-old female and her child. I mean, that's just not fitting uh, the bill, nor the storyline. And once again, the numbers are the numbers. And 13% of America's population are committing about 60% of its violent crimes, somewhere in the neighborhood of that. And when you look at white-on-black crime, the reason that I kind of um, highlighted that this morning, Jordan Neely's an African-American, or was. He's deceased now. Daniel um, Penny's a white guy. Daniel Penny put Jordan Neely in a chokehold and choked him to death. Now, there should be an investigation. No question about it. There should be a thorough investigation. But the media's already decided that, you know, um, Jordan Neely, a former uh, armed services guy, you know, military, 
um, went out of bounds at attacking a guy who was presenting or proposing no harm, uh, the New York governor. I mean, she's the official spokesperson for the state of New York. She says, and I quote, for those just joining the show, um, that Neely died just being a passenger on the subway and said it's very clear that he was not going to cause harm to any other people. Major news publications are calling um, Neely a beloved Michael Jackson impersonator and despite others' attempts to portray him as dangerous and violent. You ready for some facts and statistics? He'd been arrested 42 times, four times for assault. At the time of his death, Neely had an active warrant for allegedly assaulting a 67-year-old woman in 2021. Um, he was arrested in August 2015 for attempted kidnapping after he was seen dragging a 7-year-old girl down an inward street. I mean, he pled guilty to endangering the welfare of a child and was sentenced to four months in jail. He was later arrested again in June 2019 for punching a 64-year-old man in the face during a fight in Greenwich Village subway station. The media is not telling you that. The media says here's a beloved Michael Jackson impersonator who was, I mean, there's actually some, um, I mean, the members of the, of the family uh, are saying three men killed Jordan. I mean, this is Neely's uncle, Christopher Neely. Three men killed Jordan, not just the Marine. It was a gang killing. Got jumped by three hoodlums. I mean, that, that's the Neely family. I mean, that, that's an official spokesperson. The uncle's taking on the role of being the official spokesperson of the family. Somebody should say that's just not true. I mean, that's just not true. Nobody jumped um, Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely was disruptive. Um, some perceived him to be dangerous. Some felt threatened. When, when Daniel Penny felt that he and others were threatened, he took matters into his own hands. Now, now choking someone to death? That there needs to be an investigation. Absolutely. And it's tragic when anybody loses their life. Um, schizophrenia, mental illness, obviously that's a big part of this. But we're not going to have that debate in America because, once again, P Penny's a white guy, Neely's a black guy, and, and the, you know, the news today is reporting that the black activist is joined with a white tyrannical do-gooder, and they're protesting and shutting down uh, the subways of New York City. Facts be damned. That's my point. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD, good morning. Good morning. Um, a couple of things that uh, kind of struck me this morning when you were running out those statistics and and uh, and you said, you know, how many how many uh, people perpetrated these crimes and started thinking about it. And I was like, you know, there's what, 300 million people in, in the United States, somewhere around there? About 330 million. And there was only 500,000 violent crimes committed last year? I'm actually surprised that that number's that low. Uh, I mean, it sounds like a lot, but when you really stop to think about it, out of 300 million, even if each one of those criminals was a unique criminal, out of 300 million people, there's only 500,000 violent criminals? I was kind of surprised by well, that. Well, that, that's yeah, black on white. Mean, you, well, you got Hispanic on white. It's 360. It's about a million. It's total about a million. That's still a low that's, number. That's one in 330. I'm, I'm actually slightly encouraged by that. And then this is the, 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 the warning that I want to give all the listeners, okay? 13% of our country are not controlling this narrative. Do not get angry at African-American people for the narrative that is going on in the media. They don't own these media outlets. They don't run these media outlets. This is not their message. And the conversation and the reason it keeps going awry is because we think that this is a conversation that needs to be had between white people and black people. I don't believe that's the answer. 
I believe it's a conversation that needs to be had between white people and white people because this narrative is not being promulgated by the African-American community. They are just as much a victim of this false narrative as we are. Yes, it, it probably influences the African-American community's behavior, but it influences ours as well. And they're not the ones. They're, I mean, the, the media is owned by four white billionaires, essentially. So it, it can't be. we got to be careful that we don't get angry at our African-American brothers and sisters because this narrative persists, because they, they are not the ones that are promulgating this narrative. That's my only warning uh, on all of this. I, I think the narrative exists, and I think it's problematic. I think it's causing a lot of problems in the United States. But do not pin it on the backs of African Americans because this is not their narrative. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. we have another call? Let's go to the yep. phone. Someone's there. Here's Jam. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Uh, Larry pretty much took the words out of our mouth. Um, we're being taught to hate each other. And it drives me nuts. And I wanted to say y'all are off to a decent start this morning. It's a decent show and not a great show. It's not a bad show. Starting off with a good show, decent show. <laughs> but uh, I do want to say, you know, Ken, are there some white people that you just don't like, uh, a group of white people that you just don't like? Yeah, that, I mean, I, I don't like most people, to be honest with you, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jam. Appreciate that. I mean, I mean, I'm an equal defender. I mean, I was sure you that Rev can attest to that. Uh, you know, I, I don't care for most people. Um, <laughs> most people probably don't care much, much for me in return. A uh, couple of interesting points made there, and and I'm going to go back to the to the the question I posed, and I don't know the answer to this. And 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 once again, I believe that most black people are peaceful. I'm not insinuating for a second that the majority of black people are violent criminals. I mean, I don't buy that for a second. That's why I asked the question of the 547,948 acts of violence committed by blacks against whites, how many are repeat offenders? I mean, is it six per uh, person? Is it eight per person? Um, this person had been arrested 42 times. I mean, this one individual had been arrested 42 times, um, four for assault. So there's four right there, just one person. So, so you know, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't buy for a second that, you know, the majority of African, they make up 13% of the population and 80% of African-Americans or, you know, have the potential to commit violent acts of, of crime. I mean, I think we all, to some degree, have the capacity to commit violent acts of crime. I mean, you do, I do, Josh does, we all do. There's a bit gene in everybody. I mean, for some of us, it's a little uh, bitter than, than, than for others. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it bends a little further uh, one way or the other. But, um, and, and you know, I, I think we've got to be careful to believe that um that that African Americans are in control of this narrative, this preconceived narrative. Now I will say that you know the media gives a, a larger platform than normal for the Al Sharptons of the world. Uh, Jesse Jackson's in no condition to say these sorts of things, but but I guess Larry's point would be, well, that's why they let them on. You know that they would let Al Sharpton on to stir division, to create animus one race toward another. Same thing. Uh, with Jesse Jackson, the race baiting industry is very provocative and and very lucrative. There, there's no doubt about that. But but I reiterate, I'm not suggesting for a second 
that that the majority of the 13% of African-Americans in America are violent criminals. I mean, I think that would be absurd to say that. But but there is a disproportionality here, whether it's reported or not, whether billionaires own the media or not. I mean, there's a, there's a stat here that I find a bit staggering, and that is the number of crimes committed black on white when blacks make up such a small percentage of the population. Let's let's go through this again. We said that whites make up somewhere south of 70, north of 60. I mean, that, I don't know exactly what the number is. I'll look during the break. It's probably in the 65-ish percent neighborhood. So 65% of America's population are committing crimes on the 13% that total 207,164. I mean, that's white on, excuse me, um, uh, white on black. Uh, 59,778. So about 60,000 reported incidents of violence, including a white person committing an act of violence on a black person. So I'm going to go percentages here. 65% on 13% and then 13% on 65%. Um, Once again, I I don't say the the African-Americans own the narrative. I think Larry's right there. But there's a statistic data point here that is indisputable. I mean, something is disproportional here. My, my question is why? I mean, why in America today are so many violent crimes being committed by African-Americans? I mean, I think that's a very fair question. Um, once again, the narrative is owned by the media moguls and billionaires. I'll accept that. But but the, it doesn't change the, the statistic. I mean, the data is what the data is. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Let me ask you this. I mean, you asked an interesting question mm-hmm. a second ago, so go there and then we'll go to the phone. I think you're having a very open and frank discussion this morning, and that's a good thing. But okay. how, how would you answer a critic that would say something like this? The news that we are rea- reacting to and responding to is a white guy killing a black guy in a subway in New York City, right? And what you're talking about is black people committing crimes. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm talking so about... So how do you answer that criticism? Well, I mean, okay. Um, do you know George Floyd? Sure, D- do you th- Do you think we'll remember Jordan Neely? N- n- name the white person that got killed by an African-American. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not trying to pit one race yeah. against the other. I promise I'm not, man. Why would I do that? I mean, what do I have to gain by doing that? I mean, of course I'm trying to be a bit provocative. It's a conservative talk radio show. There, there's, a, there's a narrative amongst mainstream media, and Larry's exactly right. It isn't owned by African-Americans. I mean, it's owned by media moguls and billionaires. I mean, that's who decides um, who says what on the news. Why is Tucker Carlson not on Fox News anymore? Because a media mogul billionaire's family said, we don't want him on there anymore. So, so they make the determinations. I mean, if you can take Tucker off the air, you can take anybody off the air and Tucker's narrative did not fit what the Murdoch family wanted on their airwaves. So, so Larry's right that they control the disseminating of information to a high degree. Now, now I would imagine you can't filter everything. I mean, there, there's some spontaneous things that that are covered or you know on the fly, and, and they don't have a chance to huddle up and say, "Hey, be careful with this now. Let's make sure we're telling the story this certain way." I mean, I think that happens on rare occasion. Mm-hmm. But I go back to um, George Floyd. Um, the kid that got killed in Florida, Travian Martin, mm-hmm. um, and now Jordan Neely. I mean, that those names will be forever remembered. N- n- name the white person who's been killed by a black person 
who we built a statue for. I mean, I know that's real provocative when I go down there. Josh didn't make an eye contact with me anymore. Josh ensured this is a job for you. But I think these are conversations, guys. I mean, we've got to have these conversations. The majority of white people don't hate black people. The overwhelming majority of black people don't hate white people. But it's good for business. It's good for the news to to suggest or insinuate that you know how those white people are about those black people. You know how those black people are about those white people. And then when it, when an example happens as horrific and tragic as happened on on this subway, we, we get this we get this thirty five thousand foot perspective, and we don't get boots on the ground. We don't go through the work necessary to understand exactly what happened. And I'll give Adams a little credit. I mean, I'm gonna give the New York City mayor credit because I've read every day he's been very guarded. He's been very careful. He has said, "Hey, let's let's do an investigation. Let's find out exactly." Now, Hochul's not. So she's a consummate politician. She's advantaged when we hate one another. Her life is better when whites and blacks don't get along because she can kind of gin up that animus. And, um, you know, and, and being, a, being a Democrat in New York, uh, you need a lot of African-Americans voting for you, and they will vote for you. So she, she's politicizing uh, the reality. So, so, no, I mean, I, I think we can have this conversation without you believing that I am somebody trying to drive a wedge of division. I just think that there, there, there are, there's data here. That is indisputable, and the data never is allowed to be a part of of the debate. Let's go to the phone. Bill in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning, fellas. Hey, Ken, I think we're missing the big thing here. I think it's the false narrative of, of oppression, okay? And here's why I think that. Okay, if, if, if a black man robs a store and kills somebody, he had to do it because he's been oppressed. You know, he, he, he has to provide for his family. Well, if, if in that scenario a white guy kills that black guy, he's now oppressing that black guy because he killed him. And now he's going to be oppressive of the family. And I think that's where it all starts. It's just, it's just basic, you know, this, this really this false narrative of oppression. Thank you. Appreciate that. And there's no question socioeconomics play into this. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I got a text a second ago from a good listener. And um, so poverty is why. You know, um, hope is a powerful thing. And if you have hope for a better way of life, a better tomorrow, you're less inclined to do something stupid. I mean, I, you know, I don't know where that study was done, uh, I, but, but it's pretty easy to understand that if you're hopeful for a better future, you're less inclined to do something stupid like, you know, assault someone or rob someone or, or, or do something that sticks with you for the rest of your, of your existence in life. So, yeah, I mean, I think oppression, I think the, uh, the notion of oppression, um, you know, convincing a group of people that they're not getting a fair shake. Forget uh, convincing a group of people that, you know, um, you're, you're, you're not considered the same way others are considered. I think that that's a very interesting point. And once again, I don't know how you get to a, to a place of determining whether that's true or not. I mean, uh, Bill made an interesting point. Was it Bill? Uh, Bill, Bill, yeah. Bill made an interesting point. Um, and he says one of the secondary features of this debate is a group of people who have been convinced they're being oppressed. Are they being oppressed? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any interest in oppressing black people, but but I don't run the system. You know, I don't run the world. I'm not at Davos. I mean, is is there a um, unintentional intent? Wow. Okay. Can there be such a thing as an unintentional intent? Is there an unintentional intent? We just declared there is. Um, to 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 oppress one group of people in favor of another? I don't know. I mean, we we talked yesterday. We talked you know, for weeks on end about the ruling class. I mean, in essence, aren't we kind of arguing the same thing, that, that we're being oppressed by these masters of the universe, 
who controls so much of the media and the economy and the body politic. I mean, aren't we kind of complaining of some of the same thing? Not because of the color of our skin, but but we've not, you know, we've not amassed fortunes. We don't run BlackRock. We don't run Vanguard. We don't run, you know, the uh, the World Health Organization. We don't run the International Monetary Fund. So so aren't we in essence kind of um? I mean, didn't Tucker's message basically that that you're not black, you're not Hispanic, but the white working class has been oppressed, and it resonates. I mean, nobody likes to believe they're oppressed. And believe it or not, it's easy to convince someone they are being oppressed. That, that's kind of a weird way to look at it. But, but I think in politics today, a, a lot of the Trump movement is a belief that, you know, the white working class has been oppressed. And maybe that's why it's gotten somewhat of a boiling point. You've got African-Americans who've been convinced they've been oppressed. You've got the white working class who've been convinced they've been oppressed in different sorts of ways, one by the color of their skin and the historical nature of our nation, and the other by um, the, the, the geopolitical way the world has worked. Uh, we passed trade policies, immigration policies, um, the advancement of China as a, a big economic force. Who's paid the biggest price in relation to immigration trade in China? The white working class, right? So in essence, isn't the argument that the white working class has been oppressed? I mean, we don't go to Trump rally saying, I'm voting for that guy because he knows I've been, he knows, I mean, human emotion is diligent. It's very finicky. I'm no different than anybody else. I mean, I have these certain feelings and emotions. I just said a second ago, I don't think I'm racist. I don't think I've been oppressed, but, but, you know, you get somebody fairly articulate and, and kind of a, a, a drumbeat of messaging, next thing you know. That's kind of an interesting, I mean, I stumbled on this. Maybe maybe that's why it's so volatile right now, or appears to be so volatile. I don't think it's that damn volatile. I mean, Larry's right, 330 million people, and you've got about a million, you know, um, acts of violence perpetrated one against another. And I'm talking about across every socioeconomic bound, every race, every religion, every ethnicity. we, we got about a million violent crimes committed, one American against another. I mean, it just happens a higher percentage. A much higher percentage is black on white than any other um, subcategory in that in that um, in that incident report from the Justice Department. But but could some of the volatility be the the African Americans being convinced by one part of the body politic that you know they're still being oppressed, you're still not given a fair shake, and along comes Trump and Trumpism and MAGA Republican and his China trade and immigration. Um, no, they've not been oppressed. They've been given a fair shot. Since LBJ, they've been given more than their fair share, uh, racial quotas and affirmative action and all these other programs that were implemented with the desire to level the playing field so every race has equal chance to attain success. And all of a sudden, you know, um, the China trade immigration debate seems to have harmed or damaged the American working class, largely white working class, and they feel as oppressed as the African-Americans, I've often said that that's probably the biggest game in town. I mean, that's, that's, um, I use the analogy, one, one team has the, um, the pitchfork, the other team has the lantern, and as long as the team with the lantern is mad with the team with the pitchfork and the pitchfork crowd is mad with the lantern crowd, we aren't mad at who we should be mad with, and that is those stirring all this division and, and you know, group animus one um, toward another. Do we have a call? We Let's do. go to the phone. Mike in Darlington, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I tell you, I'm I'm glad to hear that uh, you're a decent show and you're not indecent this morning. But uh, as far as it uh, it goes, I think it, that's the one part of the 
Marxist uh, philosophy that works consistently, and that's creating division. If you can create, and and there's a certain amount of people, apparently a large number of powerful people that want to create division and discord in society. And I don't know exactly why that is, but I do know that it is. And these people, and for the most part, people want to get along. And I think that's that's the situation in the world for the most part. But there's that 1% or whatever out there, no matter what color or persuasion they are, that won't cause trouble. And I noticed there were just an unusual number of white people jumping down there on the railroad tracks and everything for the little cut I saw. And uh, it seemed like the white people were causing trouble as much as anybody was. And uh, they're actually hindering black people from going to work. Now, what kind of craziness is that? That is just absolutely insane on the basis of it. But uh, I, I I don't think Marxism has ever worked since the 1840s when Marx came up with it. But uh, it uh, the one part of it that does work is uh, creating discord. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Well, and then think of this. Um, who likes to have a sense of oppression? I mean, I don't. Rev Dutton. I mean, nobody. I mean, but but I think sometimes consciously and subconsciously, we, we have this sense of oppression. I believe. Okay, I'll say that. I think the American working class has been oppressed. I think immigration policy has been bad for the plight of the American worker. I think the relationship the world has with China has been bad for the American worker. I think um, uh, trade policy, NAFTA in particular, has been bad for the American worker. How can the American worker not feel somewhat oppressed by the powers to be? The American working class no different than the white. I mean, than the blacks. I mean, they don't get to, to make the rules. They kind of play the game under the rules of here we go with the pyramid of the Davos crowd. Of the twenty-seven hundred people who I um, inhabit one hundred thirty countries and go to Davos every year, and kind of I mean that's the you know the peak of the pyramid. Those are the ones that build the world of which we all exist in and live in, and some live fabulously successful lives, and some. I'm um, not so much, but, but yeah, I mean, I, as we're talking through this, the, the, the notion of oppression is probably a big ingredient and, and maybe the reason it's so, or feels so volatile. Maybe it's no more volatile now than it has been. Maybe it's the media fan of the flames, uh, higher and higher, but it, the, 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 it does feel different today. Now, but there seems to be a degree of resentment between the white working class and the African-American. I'll say this. I've been around a lot of kind of people in my life. There ain't no race that has the corner market on mean and crazy. I mean, I can assure you of that. I mean, mean and crazy knows no racial bounds, knows no socioeconomic bounds. Um, I mean, mean and crazy is mean and crazy, but you can't get away from that fact. I mean, you, is it oppression? Is it, is it, you know, hatred? Is it, you know, uh, not, not forgetting what the country has done? african-americans for many many years of his existence there's a reason this number is what it is i mean as a business person the the math always matters the the idea you know the the notion the mindset the dream the advertising the marketing the branding uh the widget you build the price you try to get for the widget i mean all that goes in 
But, but at the end of the day, there's a bottom line. And that, you know, success or failure. And right now in America, I mean, the, you know, we, we're having a much higher percentage of African-American crime committed against white people. Why is that? I mean, Brees thinks it's because too many white people drive Audis and play pickleball, and they're easy targets. Um, I, I buy into some of what Bree says. Um, you know, it's the it's it's hard to feel sorry for the white male. I mean, I, I do believe that. I mean, it shouldn't be that way, but I think it is because the white male is perceived to have run the joint for a long time. And if you're getting a little of your own medicine, a little payback, then so be it. That, a lot of human emotion enters this equation. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone held on to the break. Got Dr. Bolt here. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University is with us. We'll get to him in just a brief second. I'll let him uh, jump in. Uh, kind of like, uh, let, let's let's change the subject. I don't want to go down this road. <laughs> tough, tough. When you, when you, uh, the, the, the money we pay you to come in here on Tuesday mornings, oh, yeah. you, you, you got to deal with whatever heads. That's fine. Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Terry in Lake City. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Ken, I, I'm a lot like you. I, there's a lot of people I don't like, but the, the <laughs> thing is, there's a lot of people don't like me either. So, but that that is the way it is. I, I think that the numbers that you're you know you report are probably low. There, I think there's a lot of crime that's never reported, and I, I think the numbers are low. But I think it's the all-around breakdown of society in itself, whether it's religion, the home fronts. You know, not having a mommy and daddy in the same house. Um, but the, my biggest thing is consequences. There's no true consequences anymore. You, I mean, you can go out and do what you want to do. I mean, commit a crime, do whatever. And most time they're home before I get home to have dinner. And um, I, I think that's one of the biggest problems is there's no true consequences, no accountability um, for a lot of people who, who do wrong. And I'll, I'll let you guys get back to it. I know y'all busy this morning. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate that contribution to this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. I'll say this, um, and this is kind of the conspiracy theory of all conspiracy theories on this subject. I mean, I got plenty of other conspiracy theories. I'm just talking about this. This, this Don't you think I don't have a one? I mean, I've oh, always I, got eight or I'm ten. Sure. I'm like Springsteen in songs. Remember Steve Van Zandt said, Bruce Bruce really disgusts me because he's always got two albums in his back pocket. I've always got an abundance of conspiracy theories. Uh, you you just wait can, for the appropriate yeah, time and, to yeah, present them. Yeah, right? and, and sometimes I'm going like, oh, yeah, now, now's a good time to, to throw this out there. I, I believe. Because we, we stumbled on something uh, kind of interesting in the last hour. And I'll let Dr. Bolt jump in. I mean, he's an academic. Love to get an academic's take on on some of these. Because, um, I mean, it, th- th- there's an issue in America. I mean, that, you know, race is a big deal in America. Never before has a country tried to assimilate so many different sorts of people. Right, Dr. Bolt? I mean, you would agree right. with that. I mean, you yeah, got your Jefferson the- shirt on. <laughs> That's right. I mean, no, <laughs> I mean human history is, is has a lot of different countries. Successes and failures, good governments, bad governments. We tried something that has never been tried before, and that is, you know, man being allowed to govern, govern fellow man, casting a ballot. Um, we welcomed people right. from wherever they came from, whatever views, whatever values they held. I mean, how do you not believe you end up in a big ass complicated place? And that's where uh, we are. And um, you know. Now, are we dealing with it properly? I would argue we're not, but I want to go back to something Rujan said. That's kind of an interesting theory Rujan has. Rujan's argument is, or the point he made is, that we have so many young African-American males not being influenced by an African-American father. 
and and I think we'll accept. I think even the women will admit that men are more men, men are less emotional than women. Um, sometimes men aren't emotional enough. My daughter or my wife accuses me of dealing with our daughter in in too uh, little emotional a way. You know, my my daughter's a female, obviously, and um and she needs to be emotionally nurtured. And my wife says sometimes you just lay it out there like a business guy, and and your daughter's not your business partner. She, she's your daughter, and she needs to know that the emotions of the moment are good. And and she's probably right. I think my wife gets too emotional about certain things. But there, so there's this kind of yin and yang, give and take, ebb and flow. But but Rujan is arguing that young African American men react emotionally to things they don't like. And there's a lot of things not to like about the world, whether you're African-American male or a white male or an African-American female. I mean, there's always going to be things we don't like. But, but that's kind of an I've never thought of that. So, so if you're a kid who has a, a, a male in the home as a father, a female in the home as a mother, that there's this balance. You're getting, you know, you're getting the emotions of mom. You're getting the analytics of dad. And, and you go out of the world equipped with that balance in your life. And if you don't have any of the analytics of dad and, and something happens to you that you don't think is fair, you're far more likely to react emotionally. I mean, Dr. Bowles, does that make sense to you? No, okay. <laughs> Just anecdotally, personal life, sure, of course. You know, when you get cut from the baseball team or the girl breaks your heart, you have a good cry with mom, and then usually after one day, dad's like, all right, pull yourself up. And, uh, enough is enough. Yeah, because so when, when your girlfriend dumps you, at 18 years old, you never go to dad because you know what dad says? I mean, there's more out there. Shut, <laughs> shut up. I mean, shut up and clean your room. And yep. Stop. Well, really? I mean, we're going to talk about this. But you go to mom and she loves you and hugs you and says, hey, you know, I mean, everything. I mean, it's just so, yeah, when when you lose your job, you don't go to dad. You, you go to mom. Mom loves you. Then you go to dad and say, hey, um, can you bail me yeah, out? You know money. what I mean? Yeah. Is there a way we, can, we, uh, we can rectify this situation? But the first stop is normally at mom, okay, I want to go down this conspiracy theory that I have. I believe, and this is where I really get into the um, uh, the conspiracy libertarian that, that is kind of at the center of the way I see the world. So we, we talked about sense of oppression a second ago. Um, the African-American and their sense of oppression, the white working class and their newfound sense of oppression. Because whether you like it or not, a lot of Trumpism is is because the white working class believe that the federal government did some things that disadvantaged them and their way of life. That's kind of a sense of oppression. Now, now here's what I believe, and this is where it gets real conspiratorial. I believe that the government's intent today, I don't know that it's always been this way, and maybe Jefferson warned us about it. I'll get Dr. Bolton's <laughs> take on this. I believe the government likes the fact that you feel oppressed. It likes the fact that you're impoverished. It likes the fact that you are dependent. It likes the fact that you look to it to fix some of the wrongs in your life. That gives them control. I mean, that gives them an, an enormous amount of ability to say, okay, you do this and you get that. You do this and you get this. So, so I believe this sense of oppression, it, it, it kind of it, it breeds, um, you know, a, um, a sense of dependency. In, in other words, I've been oppressed. So it was not really my fault that things hadn't worked out. So since it's not my fault that things haven't worked out, of course I think the government should come in and settle the score. And the government likes doing that because the next thing you know, a group or class of people are dependent on government, not their own free spirit, not their own free will, not their own volition, not their ability to, to do X, Y, or Z, but, but rather I'm oppressed, so I don't need to really do anything. The government will take care of these, these issues. And, and I think that breeds government dependency 
And and I think, to, to, to me, that's kind of where we are in America today. LBJ and the and the Great Society. Um, you know, I don't know what his intent was. I mean, I don't trust LBJ as far as I can throw him, but I don't know what his intent was. But but I think what, what he intended it, it doesn't matter. I mean, where we've ended up is a certain group of people believing that the government owes them something. And I'm not talking about blacks. I'm talking about across every socioeconomic bound. I mean, Dr. Bull, jump in here. Well, you're channeling your energy. Thomas Jefferson, of course. And Jefferson believed that uh, the farmer is the only one who is truly free because he is dependent upon no one. And this is what Jefferson warned us about. The Hamiltonian vision is going to lead us to everybody is going to be dependent upon someone. And so this is why Jefferson, the Louisiana Purchase, why he spends $15 million dollars. Thought he'd keep us a nation of farmers for a thousand years. He was off by about nine hundred and ninety. But you, 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 you get the you get the point, right? Again, if you're stuck working in a factory, you're dependent upon somebody else for their wages. If they mismanage the factory, you're out on the streets. I mean, the farmer, hey, just dependent upon God and a little bit of good weather, and he's okay, right? There's nobody, nobody's pulling his strings, nobody's controlling him. And of course, right? Look at where we are. You extend the curve two hundred years. Oh, and Jefferson is like, well, I told you so. I mean, you've got how many Americans are just dependent uh, upon the government for their for the daily lives, their but, well-being. But D- Hamilton was an incredibly bright man, a very capable and competent man. Yep. Did Hamilton not believe we would end up in the, in the world of government corrupting the human spirit? Well, again, this is what Hamilton said. Well, the, the British model, if you get rid of the corruption, it's the best model in the world. So again, Hamilton thought we're rid of everything. If you get rid of the corruption. Exactly. And so anyway. Good luck with that. Exactly. I mean, you know, Madison famously says, if men were angels, government wouldn't be necessary. And, you know, we've seen this, right? There are so many individuals who have game planned, who've rigged the system, uh, who know how to make it work for them. Yeah, they're they're in there and we're kind of stuck with them. They they throw us a few bones uh, every now and then say, all right, yeah, yeah, every two, four, four years we come out, we put them back into office. And so, yeah, they've they found out where the cracks are. They've certainly found a good way to exploit them. And Jefferson was certainly, Jefferson was the good uh, guy. He said, when tyranny begins, when annual elections end, we've got to have our public officials every year. They should stand for election. So this way we hold their feet to the fire. You let them go two, four, six years in the Senate, uh, they can go rogue. They can do whatever they want. And we kind of forget about, uh, they forget about whose interest they're serving. But do you think Hamilton believed that eventually certain people in certain places living certain sorts of lives would depend. I mean, I'm using yeah. air quotes here. Depend on government sure. for sustainability. For some, and why do they, what's that going to lead? That's going to lead but, to I mean, a, you think that was Hamilton's intent? I'm interrupting. Right, strength and powerful government is what Hamilton wants. With the ability the to care for people. Exactly, right. Essentially, again, this is what Hamilton wants, a government heavily involved running your lives, sponsoring, uh, fostering industry, in businesses. Again, this is the Hamiltonian a model writ large. Strong, powerful central governments that eventually would probably consume the state governments, essentially make them principalities, if you will. And but, thankfully, Jefferson was there to check them. Okay, post-Civil War, Roosevelt and Johnson come sure. to mind in advancing yeah. the Hamiltonian agenda. What, what am I missing there? Or is that kind of, um? I mean, that, that's the thumbnail, but but a little more extensively, is that what happened post-Civil War? Well, it starts post-Civil War, right? Sort of the Gilded Age, big business. The Republican Party had been the party of equal rights for African Americans. It kind of shifts to the party of big business. Uh, once you get the Great Depression and the, and the New Deal and the Democrats, 
then it's big business or government is heavily involved in business. And the Republicans believed in big business, but uh, a hands-off approach. The government shouldn't be greasing the rails, if you will. Uh, FDR, LBJ said, no, the government should be helping out. And again, FD, FDR had all sorts of cover with the Great Depression. and say, hey, we, we have to do this right now. Democracy, capitalism is at stake. If we don't do something, and we had started to see over in Europe what was happening, you've got these communist fascist governments coming to being, and FDR's position was if we don't do something, if we don't move immediately to save capitalism, we're going to look just like Germany and Italy. Okay, but in, in early American history, you have these opposite and equal forces. You had Jefferson, Jefferson and, Ham- and Hamilton. I mean, the very unbelievably bright, sure. very capable. Probably um, equal, equally balanced. Sure, okay, but, but here, here's where I'm headed. Stick with me for a second. Sure. I mean, I, I'm stepping outside of early American history. Oof. You just illustrated that there were there there are two examples in what I call post Civil War America, where the Hamiltonian model was exacerbated or or exaggerated. That be yeah. exaggerated by 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 Franklin and by by LBJ. LBJ. Did anybody advance to Jefferson? Did, was there an opposite and equal force post Civil War to Franklin to um, LBJ. You sort of have the, a couple of guys in the 1920s, uh, Warren Hardy and Calvin Coolidge in particular. But see, when you say you kind of sort of had a couple of guys, <laughs> yeah. that leads me to believe no. The answer is no. <laughs> is that, I mean. Well, Calvin Coolidge is one of these forgotten guys in American history. Uh, when Ronald Reagan became president, of all the presidents to model himself after, he picked Calvin Coolidge. That tells you a lot about Coolidge. Calvin believed in no low taxes, uh, limited government deregulation. And so again, a lot of the big gains economically in the 1920s, which eventually led to the to the stock market crash, were a result of deregulation, 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 if I say that three times fast, <laughs> and essentially the government sort of divesting itself. And again, what you have was it the stock market crashed, and this paved the way for perhaps an overcorrection by Roosevelt and the Democrats. The Republicans had just screwed it up so bad. Again, 1928 is a, a banner year for the Republican Party. They they carry all but six states. And then you just fast forward four years later, it's the Democrats who almost sweep the entire country. It's just an incredible political revolution. Never before in American history had the, the political winds just changed so abruptly. But but nobody matched the intensity of Roosevelt and LBJ when it comes no, sure. to the Hamiltonian model post-Civil right. War. Hey, these were charismatic guys brilliant politicians I mean, who knew knew how to the game worked, knew how to put pressure on their guys, uh, demanded absolute loyalty. And again, if you weren't with Roosevelt or Johnson, uh, they'd find a way to move you aside. They'd go down to your district, put their arm around a primary challenger, and force you aside. Good old-fashioned tough politics, if you will. But, but Hamiltonians to their core. Whether whether they professed to be Hamiltonians, <laughs> they, they, they they believed in the Hamiltonian model of a bigger and more intrusive and more powerful, they, more controlling government. They wouldn't say that, and FDR kind of liked to try and mold himself in the, the Jeffersonian But there's no idea. way. I mean, how do you square that up? <laughs> well, again, FDR is like, well, I'm a Democrat, right? And so this is the, the party of Thomas Jefferson, even though I'm calling for more government programs and expanding the size of the government. But FDR publicly tell the people that, hey, you know, I'm the I'm the direct heir of Thomas Jefferson since I'm the head of Jefferson's party, the Democratic Party, which had now evolved. But but okay, but I'm onto something here now, and this is not a conspiracy theory. 
So Lincoln would have been a Jeffersonian. Every, everybody who wants didn't to, really <laughs> govern in much of a Jeffersonian way. Everybody wants to sort of wrap themselves around the mantle of Jeff. Hey, Jeff, we've said this before. Jefferson is everybody's every man. I mean, Jefferson just left so much behind that no matter what issue, what position you take, you can find a Jefferson letter, which kind of secures. You're basically saying his fingerprints are everywhere. Right. And and up until recently, you know, when some of Jefferson's extracurricular activities, Jefferson was 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 up there. He was on Mount Everest. You you, you couldn't take this guy down. He was everybody's hero in the United States of America. And history has not been kind to him. Uh, rather lately, woke history in particular. So, yeah, right, right. And so, and Jefferson has come down several, uh, several notches, unfortunately. But for many of us, he is still the quintessential uh, American that you, you've got to come to grips with. But, but we're 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 answering our own question here. So you've got Jefferson and ha- in the beginning, you had Jefferson and <laughs> Hamilton, right. and then you had Jackson. Yeah, of course. Who, was, without question, was a dedicated Jeffersonian. Right, believe I mean, he there was. There's no doubt about it. The, the successor to Jefferson's Dr. legacy. Bolt, I don't know that there's another consequential Jeffersonian after Jackson. Yeah. I mean, I understand that Lincoln said he's a Jeffersonian, but look at what he did. Right. I, I, I mean, I understand there were very complicated act. decisions sure. to be made, but you get post Second World War and you get Roosevelt, yeah. a devout Hamiltonian, despite <laughs> what he says, and you get LBJ, LBJ. who operated very much. And here's where I'm headed. If you if you kind of contemplate, why do we have this big-ass government that, that controls so many aspects of our life? After Jackson, we didn't have an equal and opposite force. I mean, there was nobody. Maybe people were writing about it and studying where, Jefferson. Where does again. Reagan land on Reagan, scale? Jefferson, that, that scale? Reagan been, is the guy. See, that, that yeah. would have been the only person right. I can come up with. I mean, Reagan was a movement leader. Reagan was a, I mean, there was a bit of a revolution there, sure. similar to what we're dealing with uh, in Donald Trump. Is yeah. that a fair articulation? Oh, sure. And Reagan, right, cutting taxes, government regulation, but again, adding on to the, the national debt in the defense. Something of, Jeffersonian just is not believing. Sure. In, in the, the way that Reagan was doing it in the defense industry. You know, but again, it he was right in the It brought the Soviet Union to its knees. But again, Jefferson's philosophy was, no, you don't need a standing army. We've got all the state <laughs> militias. Right? Why Why spend the Can- money? Cannons on, on rowboats. Exactly. The, the mosquito gunboat fleet. <laughs> they, they were serious about this. So Was Jefferson a fascist? Oh, no, absolutely not. No, he was He was the quintessential. I'm, I'm sorry, a pacifist. I, I so. said fascist. I'm in a pacifist. <laughs> Jefferson, I, yeah, for the most part, didn't want to fight. Because Jefferson, wars aren't cheap. And Jefferson had cut the government down to the barest bones. And he realized if we go to war, all of this hard work, years of hard work, is going to be nullified in just two minutes. You know, Congress is going to have to spend all of this money on appropriate. And that's exactly what happened when we went to war in 1812. The, the debt doubled overnight. And it took us until Andrew Jackson uh, to finally pay it off. We'll take a break. We'll be Dr. Sure Will, Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair of Francis Marion University, will be with us for another segment. Uh, back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us. Okay, let's go back here for a second. So so the Jeffersonian mindset is that of limited government. Absolutely, yeah. No argument. The Hamiltonian mindset is that of a more expansive government. That's That's Stronger, been kind of the perpetual debate yep. since the beginning of, of America. Government can solve your problems. Okay, but, but doesn't it seem, and this is where I mean, Rev heard me, has heard me say this multiple times, so I'm running for office as a Hamiltonian because I want the government to have more control. I'm an enthusiastic candidate. I'm a Jeffersonian. 
I'm running for public office to be a part of a government that I want to limit its control. Yeah. But isn't that a bit oxymoronic? I mean, when you say, hey, I want to be a part of government, but I don't want government to do jack. Right. So, so isn't it kind of, uh, I mean, it would stand to reason that we've not had an opposite and equal force sure. in resistance to Hamiltonian yeah. or the Hamiltonian mindset. I mean, do you want to go out and vote for the guy who says, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit there in office and collect a paycheck. I mean, it's probably not a good a good thing. But again, we, where we are right now, we're we're going to need individuals like that who are going to say we're going to make some tough decisions. You're you're not going to like them. We've got to we've got to put the Jefferson viewpoint blueprint back into play, or if not, it's all going to come crashing down at some point. I mean, the Hamiltonian system where we are right now, it's it's not sustainable. And so you're going to need some individuals, men and women, who are going to run for office and say, all right, we're going to we're going to make these big cuts, even though once we win. And again, everybody's a, a fiscal conservative when they're out of power. Once they get into office, they're going to have to say, we're going to resist the temptation. You know, we, we'd love to bestow favors on you. We'd love to reward you for your support, but uh, we've, got, we've got to make the tough calls. This is an unfair question, but I ask anyway. Jefferson gets attributed every quote of the history of mankind. <laughs> I mean, everything since the beginning of time, Thomas Jefferson said that. Or if not Jefferson, Mark Twain. The only two people that have ever said anything <laughs> in the history of humanity is Mark Twain and Thomas Jefferson. Well said, yeah. How do we know? How do we vet what Jefferson said and what he didn't? Well, we're fortunate Jefferson was a pack rat. Uh, Jefferson made copies of all of his correspondence. And so even the ones that if somebody received it and thought, I'm just throwing it in the trash, Jefferson himself uh, kept a detailed uh, record of his correspondence. And so we know Jefferson gave very, very few public speeches. So it's not like you have to try and find him in some newspaper or there's just a summer. He, he hated to speak in public. Sucked at it. So yeah, that's a good way to, to put it right. <laughs> a, a brilliant politician who was just terrible at giving a speech. And when he, when he had to do it, people just, just cringed and got up and left. Uh, they just gave two speeches as president, his two inaugural addresses. I mean, Biden gave two on his, his first day as president. <laughs> Don't know if he gave two. Uh, we, won't, we won't go down that road. For sure. But yeah, Jefferson today, could you imagine someone just being uh, afraid of speaking in public? Would they be able to make it uh, in, in public life, in public office? I mean, probably not. I mean, he couldn't work a, a chamber of commerce room or just even work the, the local church if he had to. And so, yeah, he'd just been probably would have been a, an afterthought. So are there any Jefferson quotes? I know we ended up talking about Jefferson. We always do. Are there any Jefferson quotes that that you hold more and dear near and dear to your heart that you find a bit prophetic well the one that everybody says is that uh, all men are created equal and again certainly this is the always been the rallying cry uh for the united states of america and we're still trying to live up uh to that great promise of thomas jefferson 1776 but did jefferson intend that as a practical reality or an inspirational notion I mean, that, that's, I mean, no. I think Jefferson knew where we were. I mean, mm -hmm. he was not ignorant. I mean, he, he, the famous wolves quote about slavery. Uh, I mean, he <laughs> knew how complicated, exactly. I mean, you know, you can't turn it loose and you can't hold, hold it. I mean, he knew the complications. The yeah. So, so do you believe that when Jefferson wrote, you know, all men are created equal, he wrote it as a matter of fact, or he wrote it as a kind of an inspirational ambition? Yeah, probably a little bit. And I think he's, he's thinking about what we're going to have, we're going to, we're, we're fighting against a corrupt monarchy. And what are we trying to put in its place? A democracy, a republic where the people are sovereign. Uh, in a country where you're going to be judged, not on your last name, not on who your father was, but on your merits. And so this was going to be a radical break uh, that there was going to be 
equality of opportunity. We can't guarantee equality of outcome, but the deck isn't going to be stacked against you, or it's not going to be stacked in somebody else's favor. You come here to America, uh, and you ascend. You rise up and you improve. You better yourself. I think that's what Jefferson had in mind. And Hamilton believed that. As well. I mean, Hamilton believed but, in that yeah, core principle. Hamilton also believed, though, right, the, the government can grease the rails for you. You know, so the government can if one be group, involved. If one group lags a bit, mm-hmm. it's the government's we job to kind of— We give you a little of, push, if you will. And Jefferson said, absolutely not, right? The government shouldn't be involved. Government should just be off to the side. That, that's kind of an interesting—I I still believe that the takeaway from this talk with, uh, with Dr. Boldy is there's not been an equal and opposite reaction or force to promote Jeffersonian government. I mean, you've got you've got Roosevelt who proclaimed himself a Jeffersonian no. and came up with the New Deal. You made an interesting point. The New Deal was not for the fat cats. No, I mean, the, the, the New Deal, the mindset of the New Deal was populist in nature. Again, the, the guys on Wall Street, the fat cats, called FDR a traitor to his class. I mean, FDR was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was secure. But Roosevelt's policies as president wasn't to bail out to help out Wall Street. It was to help out your poor farmers, your industrial workers. And so that's kind of the the link between uh, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and FDR. All guys who are very, very wealthy, secure, but guys whose policies were designed to help out the forgotten man. Again, your poor Americans, your working class Americans, and your farmers in the United States. And so that's sort of like the the link, the glue that links the th- those three guys together. How um How old was Hamilton when he got killed? Uh, what was he, like early early 50s? So, I mean, he still had the potential. I mean, that's kind of old by those standards, but he was in pretty good health. And Hamilton w- was in the process of rebuilding uh, his political career. He'd had a, a sex scandal a little bit, but he had kind of dug his way out of that. But again, when he was challenged to the duel by Burr, uh, Hamilton was in the Army. Hamilton said, well, if I, if I say no, I'll be looked at as a coward. Nobody's going to follow me into battle when the time comes. And in Hamilton thought most of these duels were resolved peacefully. You show up, you, <laughs> you fire the gun into the air. You've showed your manhood. You are willing to put your life on the line. And Burr was out for blood, and he got him in the end, sadly. Last question. Uh, I thought about this over the weekend. We had the coronation of a king. I mean, in essence, that's what led to America. You know, um, a group of people yeah. refusing to bow to a king and getting tired of a monarchy and, and British rule. Um, what, why the infatuation <laughs> w- w- with the monarchy or the monarchy and the king and the di- – I don't say dictatorship. That's, un- that's unfair. But, but how much of that should matter to Americans? Because it's where we come from. Oh, sure. And <laughs> Hamilton at the Constitutional Convention gave a six-hour speech saying that uh, we should have some sort of a, a king kind of ruling over us who should serve for life. He gave a six-hour speech, and when he was finally done – uh, all of he sat down, all the delegates kind of looked around and said, all right, next issue. I mean, they was completely, completely buried and ignored. Uh, it was then leaked later on that Hamilton had called for a king who could serve for life and called, caused him some political embarrassment. But yes, the obsession with the... But what did he base that on? What, what did Hamilton base a belief that? I mean, we fought a revolutionary war to get away from the king. So, and then Hamilton wants to reintroduce some sort of king. Mm-hmm. But based on what? Do you want to trust the people with power? Can the people, are they fit to govern themselves? We've had democracies, republics the before dumb in Greece and Rome. How'd they work out? It didn't last long. And so Hamilton wasn't probably yet ready 
Uh, and Jefferson was just foaming at the mouth. I mean, just absolutely give the people the chance. We'll make it work here in America. We'll transport it, export it all across the globe. And so, again, this is just another difference between Hamilton and Jefferson. Hamilton wanted a king. I mean, that, that's pretty wow. bizarre. I mean, I'd read that, but I've never heard it articulated the way Dr. Bolton just um, just said it's it. six-hour speech calling for one, and everybody is just, you can just imagine them. Is this guy serious? But, I mean, that's when you vote cloture. I mean, that's when you, you <laughs> shut the guy up. I mean, after about an hour or two, you start looking, okay. But, no, sometimes, though, if a guy wants to hang himself, Give yeah, him a little you let him do it. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. that, maybe that was the uh, the savviness <laughs> of the uh, of the early Congress when they allowed Hamilton. So Hamilton's pinnacle was what? Well, by the by the 1790s, he's Secretary of the Treasury. He gets the economy up and moving, and the economy in the. But 1780s, he had Washington's ear. I mean, Hamilton sure, he had luck, Washington's ear. Hamilton, say which is a brilliant financial mind. You know, really just got the economy out of the doldrums of post-revolution. And Hamilton, why why does he finally resign? Well, there's the sex scandal. But he's at the top, and when you're at the top of Mount Earth, what's the only place to go is down. And so Hamilton realized, well, eventually, right, there's going to be a bit of a hiccup in the economy. I'm going to get out while the going is good. And so in Hamilton, really, the, the model that he put in place, as much as Jefferson disliked it, once Jefferson got into power, he said, we're stuck with this. We can't get this. If we tear it down, it's going lead to lead to economic chaos and ever since then, the Hamiltonian model is still governing the United States of America. And Hamilton would have been perceived in today's American, uh, the, the intertwinement of politics and business. Hamilton would have been a financier. I mean, he would have been a Wall Street guy. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Big banker. Uh, Jamie Dimon. A uh, Jamie Dimon. Hank Paulson. If you will. Right, uh, yeah. The former CEO of Goldman who ran the, the Treasury for George W. Bush when the world blew up in yeah. 2008. Yeah. I mean, that, that would have been ha Hamilton. If that Hamilton were alive lane. today. That's where he would be in that sort of role. Chair of the Federal Reserve, I mean, something like that. Head of a big, big major bank or right, a government financier. Yeah. Would Jefferson have a place in today's American government? I mean, Jefferson. I mean, he was a bit of a purist. You're right. He was a purist. And Jefferson would probably say what was on his mind. It would probably cause him political trouble if he wanted to give this speech. Uh, he'd probably be writing letters to the editor, uh, editorials which probably wouldn't be a good way for him to kind of make make a name for himself. Jefferson hated practicing the law, so I don't know where Thomas Jefferson would have fit in, uh, probably just writing legal briefs. Uh, I've, got, I've got a theory on Jefferson. I think Jefferson would have struggled today because it's about media. Yeah. I mean, it's about the spoken word. It's about Obama and Reagan. I yeah. mean, what, what are the great—I mean, what, what we perceive to be the most successful communicators— in recent memory, have been Reagan, great communicator. Obama, great communicator. Bill, Bill Clinton, Clinton yeah. great communicator. Um, I mean, I don't know if Trump's a great communicator, but but he communicates, no question about Bombastic, it. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And you don't, you don't wonder he where he stands. Speech. I mean, you yeah. don't wonder where, where he comes from. I yeah. don't know how Jefferson survives. Yeah. I mean, who reads letters anymore? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> who reads op-eds anymore? Nobody. I mean, if, art, yeah. if Jefferson is writing and Trump is speaking, and Clinton is speaking, and Obama is speaking, nobody reads what Jefferson has to write. I mean, scholars do, academics right. do, historians us, do, but but voters go, hell, I ain't reading that. I mean, I, you know, I'd rather hear this guy talk than I had yep. what that guy had to um had to write. So I think Jefferson was absolutely at the perfect moment in history when there was yep. not mass media, because I think mass media would have been very much a disadvantage of, um, of Thomas Jefferson. No doubt you can, and... Jefferson probably would not have felt very comfortable if you invited him to come on this talk show <laughs> as much as you loved him. <laughs>
Uh, it would have been tough getting. What getting I mean, you, to you feel the same way about him as I do. That's the highlight of my week, and right, we love we love Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing the Jefferson Burr. Um, that would have been 1900. That would have been the second election of Tom Eighteen hundred. Eighteen hundred. I'm sorry. 1796 first election. 1800. Um, the second. Thank you, Doctor Bolton. Hey, as always. We'll take Thanks, a break. Guys. We'll be back in just a few moments. So we didn't have any Jefferson airplane. <laughs> To commemorate and honor Thomas Jefferson, right. so we played Big Old Jet Airliner, the closest we could get. Yeah. Same neighborhood. That's right. That there's always a method to the madness. You think we just wake up every day and willy-nilly make it up as we go? You have no idea how many extensive training sessions Josh has been through, mm. how many producer meetings we have prior to going on the air. I mean, it, it would it would confound you. Oh, extensive you would expect planning. A, uh, you would expect a much better product than what you get. <laughs> It's pretty obvious we don't have production meetings. We don't. Uh, we do make it up as we go. Occasionally, um, we get lucky and come up with something that makes sense, like a song that ties into what we're talking about or whatever. Occasionally. Occasionally. It, it's normally luck yeah. more than anything. Yeah. But I asked Rev, uh, how about some Jefferson Airplane? Because we've talked a lot about Thomas Jefferson. How about some uh, Big Old Jet Airliner? Okay, that's yeah, in the same man. neighborhood. Yeah. So the, so there there that that's how that went down. In case you want to know, I didn't send Rev a note yesterday. I mean, that's a bit of a stretch and everything, but it, it's I get kind, it. it's kind of funny when I hear some of these highfalutin radio shows say that they had a meeting with staff, you know, before the show. And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, we didn't have a meeting with staff." And and I think it's better um when you I mean Josh has got to get used to this. Um I think Josh is sending Rev uh, kind of a um, a comment about what the person wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to know. I mean, I, I just, I don't have any interest in knowing what the person, I think I do a better job being surprised. I think the, the, the caller does a better job of, you know, being liberated from, uh, well, we're not talking about that because we're talking about this. Um, now, now I, I'll, I'll level with you. Here's one of the um, the advantages I have. Some of you call trying to redirect the show in a particular direction. And sometimes I'm hell-bent on going back down the road and plowing the field that we were in. I ain't going, I ain't leaving the back 40, going, you know, across town to, to plow yeah, that field Especially if you there. haven't made your point. Yeah, but, um, but, but you know, it's, it's, I think the, once again, there's no beauty to this show. There's no genius to this show. But some of the success of this show, I think can be attributed to the very spontaneous organic way of which it feeds into itself. Um, Josh said earlier that not, not worried, not alarmed, not bothered, not concerned about, um, I think you may have asked him, Hey, with the, with the guy that you worked with before have gone that far down the road with race. And Josh says, probably not. And then he looked at me and said, doesn't bother me that we go down that road. But, but I think going where no man has ever gone um or, or you know I'm, I'm i'm being a little bit flippant here but I, I do think that that going places and having discussions and conversations about things that things that make people uncomfortable will make all of us better i mean I, I really and truly believe that it's a little bit like working out i mean i'll go to the gym today um i woke up this morning and, and while getting ready i said okay today is tuesday here's what i do on tuesday but here's what i'm gonna try today I mean, I'm already thinking about you're already, wor- you're already thinking well, I mean, about I'm your just workout. About, there's a little twist in my workout that I'm going to do. <laughs> See, I'd be up saying, man, how can I get out of working out? Well, I mean, I, I thought about that for two seconds. <laughs> did you? Of course I did. <laughs> Same thing with the alarm went off. I mean, I thought yeah. about it for two seconds. I ain't getting up there. I'm going to rev and saying I'm sick. 
I do it every day. I mean, we all do it every day for one second. I'm, I, man, yeah. I'm so glad to find out I'm not the only no. one. No, I mean, what moron wants to get up at 4.30? Get out of a good, comfortable bed. Nobody. But then you think about, you know, um, gainful employment and compensation, bills, and yeah. you know, Re- keeping reality, your head above. Yeah, you. reality sets in after about one second. But but of course. So, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm thinking about working out. Okay, I'm going to do this one little twist that I read about over the weekend and see if it makes me feel different. I mean, I, I just believe keeping things fresh and, and a bit unpredictable make all of us better. And and the second that I feel this show, and you and I have had a lot of conversations, and, and, and Josh will see this, the second that I feel we're being redundant and guarded and monotonous is the day that we either need to change up something or just get the hell out of here. I mean, I, I'm convinced of that. Um, it's fun. It's challenging to um, to wake up every day. Now, I'll, I'll level with you. I'm drinking some Pepsi Zero Sugar today. I'd rather be drinking a Celsius or Fast Twitch, but Ref took the stash home with him. So we're we're a week behind on um. I told you that was it was a Fast Twitch. It was just a try, and there were only two. I there saw him leaving left. the parking lot. I thought he had a dead man in his trunk. Oh come on! I mean, the, you know these um. You know, these trucks that are so you low thought, in the back. Yeah, you thought yeah. I was squatting. I thought you'd have put a squat kid on your on your well, car. There first, you I don't have a truck, right? Okay, you don't. You don't. You're city boy. Drives a car. Yeah. Uh, Josh, you drive a truck or a car? I drive a car. Mm, two city boys. Okay. And I drove a truck for years. Well, a, Oh, uh, of course you uh, did, an SUV, right? you know that. Of course you did. I used to drive a Jeep. <laughs> See? Josh, Josh is like, but I mean, don't think any less of me because I drive a car. We, we do really think less of you because you drive you drive a car. We didn't tell you that, Josh. No, one you of the did requirements. Not. <laughs> one of the requirements is you must drive a truck to be a producer on this. You got to be in touch with real Americans. You got to be in touch with, with with real Americans, and you know um, the majority of real Americans drive trucks. Now, now, wh- now, which is better, a a nice, you know, comfortable car gets good gas mileage, or say a cute little truck like yours? Well. Um, <laughs> Because you have a truck. Well, I do. I've always had. I've had a truck for 30. Trying to think of the last car. Hmm. Wow. I mean, my wife's got, you know, she's driven other things. I mean, obviously, I've, yeah, I I don't know the last car that I've driven. Mm-hmm. Wow. 37 years ago, I guess. I mean, I'm thinking wow. about, is there a day in my marriage? I've been married going to 37. Is there a day in our marriage that I drove a car? I mean, she can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there is. I think I've always driven a truck. Now, for 20 years, I had a company truck. We would buy trucks at auction sales. I mean, it was not a super nice truck. Uh, you know me, man. I mean, you be, I, cars don't impress me. I mean, I, I just, I'm not real. I mean, I, sure, of course, when I sit in a really nice ride, I got a couple of buddies who've got really nice rides, and I sit in for a second. I'm like, wow. I mean, this is, this is oh, pretty yeah. luxurious. When do we take off? <laughs> um, and, and then they'll, then I always ask, I mean, I, I, cause I have to, I'll say, I'm going to just set you back <laughs> and they'll tell me and I'm going like, Ooh, yeah. I'm glad this isn't mine. I'm glad, you know, put me back in my, in my truck and I'll get, I'll be just fine. Yeah, that, I've just never, I mean, I've just never, that's not ever been a big deal to me that the status of what I drive. Now, now I got, once again, a couple of buddies who've done well in business and they went out and bought these like like Range Rovers or Land, what am I trying to say? One of the high-end nice, SUVs. Yeah. And I mean, they're, they're unbelievably expensive. And, and no doubt, when you sit down in that, it's different than sitting down in my truck. But when I ask the pervert, you know, what did this set you back? And they tell me, and I'm like, well, first of all, I can't believe it. And then I want to hit him in the head. 
Because, you know, I'm such an altruistic soul. How much good could you have done to the world uh, by not driving this $90,000 luxurious um, SUV? Well, and I'll, and I'll say this, you know, in, I guess, an effort of full disclosure here. I'm, I enjoy driving my vehicle, but I did have a Yukon for years and years. Dro- dro- drove the wheels off of it. You know, just had it for uh, 20 years, uh, just about. So the car I'm driving now is a hand-me-down from my son. We had gotten my son a car for his last few years in college. And then when he got out of college and got a job, he bought himself a truck. I got the hand-me-down car. Now, it's nice, and I don't sure, complain. Sure, it's very nice. Yeah. Got GPS, and I think it's got one of these, uh, what, what was this, a Sears talks back with you and all that good stuff. Oh, it's got a voice recognition yeah, stuff. Yeah, there you go. It, it kind of drives itself. Sounds like lane. Olivia Newton-John, yeah. doesn't it, Drev? <laughs> huh? Yeah. It sounds like Olivia Newton-John. It can. Um, well, of course it can. I mean, that's kind of the, um, isn't that the lady's voice that we heard? I mean, we met the lady last week or the couple a couple of weeks back. On network television, she was there as the voice of, is it Siri? I mean, am I, I getting said, that right? I saw that, yeah. See, I want mindset on Stevie Nicks. I, I, want, I, want, I want my GPS to say, turn right now, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the, the meme out, you know, Taylor Swift writes a song about her boyfriend. Stevie Nicks makes her ex-boyfriend play guitar, lead guitar to song about them breaking up, about, yeah. about her dumping him. That's the difference in Stevie Nicks and every other, every other girl That's true. in the world. That's let's, true. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, Ken, don't pick on Dave, man. Uh, he's he's the good northerner. <laughs> he is good. indeed. Yeah. He yeah. is indeed. Thanks. And now, and now, you know, now we're hearing about a handy-down dad. See, now he makes sacrifices. How about that? Uh you know, old Steve Miller, he was talking about what funky blank going down in the city. Can you, uh, you grew up out country, you know, we talk about, uh, what is it? 2A. Hey, David, David, that, that was, locker room. David, that was the single version of that song. And the lyric is funky kicks going down in the city. Okay. The single version. Well, Just so you know, I, that's I, an I edit. You say ticks. I think me and Ken grew up in the country. So we know too much about ticks <laughs> and doodle bugs and this and that, but kicks, you know, I kicks. guess, Ken, you grew up in what tobacco country cash crop i grew up in the watermelon country mm-hmm. which i guess that's a cash crop and you talk about teamwork and people getting along together when you get out in that field brother you're trying to get that thing from the vine to the truck and you're slinging 30 pound charleston grays and 25 pound crimson sweets you build up teamwork and you're you're adding to what i call a profit center and the best thing about the back of this thing god if I, I wish i could do that today I was actually getting in shape, and I'm going to bring you into politics. I mean, you're talking about these big cities. Uh, did you see Hakeem Jeffries on Meet the Press? I did not. The other day? I did not. You didn't see that? Okay. When I noticed this, I, two things I'm looking for, where are they actually coming from? Because they always have the Meet the Press background. Like he's he represents Brooklyn, which is New York City, but they had a little message there that he is calling from Minnesota. So he was there for the Mondale Humphrey fundraising dinner. And my only point about that, you have a public service profit center. We're talking about profit centers. But you get to New York, man, in his background, they had these high rises. These aren't business buildings. People actually live in these places. So when you get down to crime and this, I mean, I always bring it down to a lot of population densities because we can call you today and I might have to worry about a bird in the background or this or that, but nobody's crashing through my door when I call to you today. So we, we are so blessed that we live where we don't have that density. 
And I was thinking about, you know, you talk about the media, and you just had the college professor on there. What is their career path to be in the media? Because that's a profit center. And I, I give you guys credit. You've got kids or in school or, or, or graduated. They were all business majors. But as a business major, I had to take these classes in literature and sociology and psychology and journalism. And I always said, how are these people going to make a living off of sociology or psychology? And, and, and these things that aren't really, to me, uh, nuts and bolts, taking a seed from the ground, getting it to somewhere you can sell it and actually sell them it. So if you want to get down to the grassroots of what's wrong with some of the professions within this country, because they're making a profit. And when they see somebody get uh, killed on the subway, they want to make a profit off of that. So this is how our country has changed. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. See, I've got this, this crazy desire, and it's real bizarre. It's so bizarre that I can't even explain it. And I normally do a decent job of explaining things. I want the American economy to compensate people exactly what they're worth in a commiserate contribution to that economy. I mean, you've heard me say this. I want to build a model. I mean, maybe I get with Elon. I can't build spaceships. I can't build, um, you know, uh, the, the, the digital town hall. But, but I want to build a, an economy where everybody gets exactly what they deserve out of that economy. Free of, and I'm not talking about government preference and government doling out benefit. I'm talking about a capitalist economy. You know, the $25 trillion um, GDP producing or valued economy in America and, and whatever it's worth to produce a radio show, Josh gets. Whatever it's worth to host a radio show, I get. Whatever it's worth to farm a thousand acres of farmland, that person gets. Um, because I believe that we're undercompensating certain fields and overcompensating others. I think there are some people who contribute far more to the economy than they're compensated for. And I think there are others who contribute far less to the economy. And I'm talking about the overhealth and well-being and, and productivity of the economy. And, and I go back to the financialization of our economy. That's my long-term concern, guys. I mean, I, I am alarmed and concerned by, oh, we got to take a break. Yeah, we, we got a Fox guest coming up in just a second. This was going to be such a profound and teaching moment. Uh-oh. I'll, I'll, I'll hold it. I'll hold it over until the, um, the next segment. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. I like the heavy on the former. That, that, I, I like a real, a, a real, uh, a real heavy, heavy influence on the uh, on the former. Hey, um, less restrictive, more restrictive. We've talked about immigration policy in that regard. I mean, that's painted with a broad brush, but a lot of us understand: is it a more restrictive policy or a less restrictive policy? Title forty-two, uh, some of the Trump era laws and and, and regulations that uh, some like, some didn't like regarding. Uh, the border, the southern border. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, it's more complicated than less or more restrictive. But at the end of the day, it kind of boils down to um, doing away with the Title 42 rules makes it less restrictive at the border. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Title 42 helped block migrants from entering the U.S. or, or it allowed uh, it, it allowed Border Patrol and, and, and the federal government to quickly expel uh, border crossers back into Mexico. And, and so that goes away today and, and border or, or Thursday and, and border towns across the Southwest are now bracing for surges of illegal immigrants rushing the border. Um, 
the Border Patrol says, saying right now that over one million migrants are currently traversing Mexico en route to the U.S. Uh, we've seen massive caravans of buses as well headed north from Central America. Jeff, why why now? I mean, what what is the motivation of the Biden administration to revert to uh, to do away with the Trump era? Um, Title 42 COVID rule. I don't know. I, honestly, <laughs> I, 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 I really don't. I mean, you, you've got, you, you know, of course, Republicans are, are, are ripping the president for this, but you've got Democrats now absolutely laying into the president. Henry Cuellar, rep from Texas, Kristen Sinema, uh, Senator Arizona, uh, uh, even Bob Menendez, of, of New Jersey and and uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, just some of them saying, "Look, this is not this is not going to end well." And I got to tell you, uh, I just got this in per multiple Customs and Border Patrol sources uh, who say that last night CBP and Border Patrol leadership in D.C. made the decision to authorize all Border Patrol sectors to begin safe mass releases of migrants to city streets if non-governmental organizations don't have the capacity to hold them. Uh, this means that we'll begin to see migrants mass release at bus stops, gas stations, supermarkets, etc., in towns and cities across the border, as CBP facilities are already over capacity in multiple sectors and NGOs are quickly approaching their limits. And Title 42 hasn't even dropped yet. Uh, I'm told that these street releases will only happen if NGOs don't have any space, so It'll be different circumstances across the border in the coming days. Uh, in this quote from one source who says the dam is about to break. So we shall see Texas Governor Greg Abbott sending some National Guard troops down to the border to try and, and, and assist. Um, we, we know that the Biden administration has said uh, they're sending 1,500 uh, soldiers down there. But, um, you know, w- what their purpose is is, is debatable. Um they say for for you know security purposes, but others say this is really just to help process migrants to green light them into the country. Um, and so we'll see. I know House Republicans are also planning to vote this Thursday on a border security bill that would, like Title 42, expel migrants and resume border wall construction. Though the White House, Karine Jean-Pierre, yesterday saying that it, it's dead on arrival and will be vetoed. Remember, the Biden administration also sued Arizona to remove that makeshift border wall. Uh, of containers last year, and so they did. They did that to fill some gaps from the wall that uh, that wasn't done, um, and, um, and 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 so we'll see. But you know, as far as their their motive, you, you know, there are, there are a couple of uh, avenues of speculation. But you know that gets into politics. I'll let you decide. But I can tell you that um, you know with Republicans and and Democrats, basically in a bipartisan way saying wait a minute this is this is this is crazy um it's probably not good for the president particularly ahead of an election year well explained jeff thank you for your time have a great day sir you too um i don't know i mean i, I thought about it this morning what what is the political advantage of that i don't know i mean i really and truly don't i mean these guys may be playing 3d chess and i'm playing checkers but i don't see i mean i go, I go back to i mean trump said a lot of crazy things i mean there is no doubt in some things i wish he hadn't said but, but something he said that I've never forgotten, and it's so simple but so beautiful what he said, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. I mean, if there's no right. line of demarcation, I mean, if, if this isn't one side and that's the other side, 
Uh, I mean, go, go to the Carolina Clemson football game this year. I mean, one team will be on one side of the field and the other will be on the other side of the field. They're not going to be on the same side of the field. And I mean, it would be absurd to believe that's normal. That's not normal. It's not normal for a country to not secure its border. It's not normal for a country to allow people just to come across there. And I mean, you're talking about we're waving. We have enough immigration law on the books today to manage the southern border, but the Democrats refuse to enforce. I mean, it's it's hard. I've heard this said over and over again by Democrat operatives. It's hard to enforce the border. Yes, it is. I mean, that's why we commit billions of dollars and, and enormous amounts of um of personnel to the border. Because we know it's hard. We know it's complicated. He was talking about Greg Abbott. Abbott is going to basically, um, I mean, his release, you ready? In response to Joe Biden's reckless border police, the Texas National Guard is loading Black Hawk helicopters and C-130s to deploy specially trained National Guard members to hot spots along the border to intercept, repel, and turn back migrants who are trying to enter Texas illegally. That's at a press conference um, at the Austin airport by, by, um, Greg Abbott yesterday, uh, about the, um, you know, the, the doing away with title 42 and, and the allowing, I mean, it, 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 it's less restrictive. And, you know, I'm, I'm taking, thinking about my and how horrible a job he's done. The Biden administration, how horrible a job, um, they've done. The Texas national guard is going to mobilize or activate 545, um, national guardsmen. They will have a, um, I mean, I guess their mission is to reinforce the border in anticipation of the increase as the Title 42 restrictions subside and go away with. I don't have any idea. I mean, I'm thinking about running a campaign, running for office. Um, what is the advantage of allowing, you know, uh, asylum seekers and illegal aliens? And, uh, you know, I, I guess there's some justification for a certain percentage of asylum seekers. I mean, that's a law on the books, but you've got to declare asylum in the, the, the country of origin. We don't enforce it. It's like we just make it up as we go, and we don't believe our lying eyes. I mean, other than Fox News, I don't think I've seen another visual of the southern border. I was thinking about it. I mean, I, I watch a lot of different news outlets to do uh, a decent enough job of, um, of contrasting the way one um, sees the world juxtaposed to another and the way they – they, they may perceive or see the world, but I don't think I've seen another news outlet in America other than Fox News give a visual. I mean, it's normally drones, and it's normally just chaos. I mean, it's mass chaos. It's um, I, I've, I've read where some of these ranchers and farmers are thinking about selling land that has been in the family for you know a couple of hundred years because they just don't, it's not worth it. They don't feel safe. They don't feel the land as productive as it was. It could be. Um, that they're having theft and petty crimes committed one after the other, after the other, after the other. And I mean, if I'm down there and got some legacy land and a way of life is going to be hard to walk away from, but at some point in time, the government just does not show the interest uh, of securing the border. It's, there's a difference in interest and ability. How able are we to secure our Southern border? That's a fair question. I mean, that's a fair question. How interested are we? It is absolutely on the books. I mean, there's an we're not interested at all in securing our southern border. The Trump administration was. Now, now go back to Abel. I mean, the Trump administration was very interested in securing the border. The ability to secure the border is quite confounding. You don't know. I don't know uh, where the hot spots 
Is it Arizona? Is it is it Texas? Um, is a percentage of this side? You know, I mean, th- th- there are a lot of complications. Is it technology? Is it drones? Is it is it manpower? Is it legislation? Is it enforcement? I mean, it, you know, the 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 capability to secure the border is complicated. The interest is not, and the Trump administration had an interest in making it harder to illegally enter the country. The Biden administration appears to not be interested at all. And, and I, I get liberal politics, conservative politics. I get the break with, with your party here and the break with your party. I don't know how anybody can defend. How can they argue that that is in the best interest of I, our I nation? I don't know, Rev. I, mean, I, w- I would imagine the argument would be it's not as bad as Fox makes you believe. And the number of um, apprehensions and, and you know, I mean the, the number of people the border police are um, apprehending and they're, uh, what, what is it, a point of, uh, they, they've got this, this word. It's, it's almost like, when do we touch that illegal? You know, that um that point of contact. And what do we do after that? But th- th- once again, I don't know that Trump was capable or able to secure the border. But they were interested. And he had a plan. Sure. I mean, th- th- there was an interest. And, you know, I mean, all you remember from the left is Mexico pays for the wall. Well, let me defend this nonsense. I mean, okay, Trump said we're going to build a wall and Mexico will pay for it. He was wrong. I mean, Mexico had no intent in paying for the wall. I mean, I get what he's saying. They're, they're going to pay for it by the the amount of illegal immigration we stop from happening. And that expense is on the, the Mexico books and not the American books. Because the majority of, of, of you know, the, the majority of migrants coming into the country now are net, I mean, they're net negative. They're taking more out of the country than they're producing. I want to be careful. I'm not anti-immigration by any stretch of the imagination because I think, you know, the American worker has decided that picking strawberries is beneath them and doing some of the menial task is a bit beneath them. Um, I, you know, I accept that as reality. I talk to people in business all the time that, that have these hard jobs and, you know, they, they can't find Americans to do those hard jobs. So I'll accept to some degree, we've got to have immigrant labor, but we've got to have an orderly way for people to enter into this country. And, and if you're a liberal and or a Democrat and you say, you know, remember when Trump said Mexico is going to pay for the wall? Okay, he was wrong. But you can defend this? I mean, it's crazy. It's absurd. It's chaotic. We are a developed and, and, and you know, one of the most uh, affluent nations on earth. And we can't do a better job of securing the border than we're doing. And we're allowing people like Mayorkas to just blatantly lie to Congress and not be held accountable. I mean, he goes to Washington and he says the border's secure. And unless Fox has actors and they've got a, a you know a set somewhere in Nevada and nobody knows about it, I mean the border is absolutely not secure. Well, the, the the left has no interest in securing the border, and the better question is why. I mean, why is the left so disinterested in securing the border? I mean, I get the Republicans wanting to secure the border. You control immigration, which is a law of the land. You protect the American worker, which is kind of a byproduct of allowing you know so many unskilled laborers into our country. And once again, I'm for allowing unskilled labor in the country. I mean, I really and truly, I get that. I mean, there, there's a supply and demand issue there. But but the left, I mean, you know, when I, I heard this uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, well, remember when Trump said, yeah, I do. And I just said, I think Trump was wrong. I don't think he should have said that. Uh, when he said Mexico's going to build a wall, he should have been another sentence there. He should have said, buy the money it saves us, providing entitlements and uh, health care and a lot of other amenities that are afforded to immigrants when they come in when, when they come into the country illegally 
Um, I just thought the word illegal. I mean, maybe I'm too much of a simpleton in today's world, and maybe that's why I want to live in Wyoming, because that seems to be a more simple way. I mean, it's a cold way of life, but it seems to be a simpler way of life. What is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth? I mean, if you can't establish that, then, you know, I'm not debating climate change. Um, Does the word illegal mean illegal or not? Because if it doesn't, then let's just just stop using it. I mean, let's stop saying illegal immigration, because, because to me, illegal makes you a criminal. Right. I mean, if you broke a law, if there's a legal and illegal way to enter our country and you choose to enter the country illegally, by definition, you broke a law and lawbreakers are what? Criminals. It's not a civil case. It's not a civil charge. It's a criminal charge. So, so, so we're affording, I mean, there's no other way to look at it. We're affording rights to criminals. We're affording opportunities to criminals. We're allowing criminals to participate in our economic system. And I don't think it has to be either or. I think you can be pro-immigration. I think you can be for unskilled labor in an organized and legal fashion making their way into the country. I'm pro-legal immigration. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm pro-unskilled labor making its way to the country because I think, I mean, I I deal with people in manufacturing, and they'll tell you in a minute, I can't find people to do this job. You know, the only people I can find to do this job are people who come from uh, our southern border or our neighbor to the south or the the countries um, south of America. I'll accept that. But how do you defend this? I mean, how do you defend the chaos and, and what those people on those in those southern border towns are having to deal with? And they don't really have to defend it. That's the problem, except a few people in Congress, you know, they hold a hearing and they push back on Mayorkas or whatever, and they talk on Fox News basically about the, the issue, but they don't have to answer. Well, my Mayorkas goes to Washington and says the southern border is secure. Oh, I mean, no me serious break. person believes that. But, but he says it, it gets away with it. Let's go to the phone. George in West Columbia. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. I agree with you that uh, I don't think Trump, well, I don't agree with you. I think Trump was wrong about Mexico paying for the border because I agree with your, the other part that you said where they paid for it by using their army. I don't know what it cost them to use their army to keep illegals in Mexico, but it, it certainly helped pay for the wall. And the other thing that I wanted to say is that the reason the Democrats are not interested in in stopping the, the illegal immigration is because they're giving all of these people free money. They're putting them up in motels. They're paying them to be here, and they're going to use them later on for votes. You know, they're expecting them to vote for the Democrats. I said this before all this ever started, about 10 years. Back during Obama's uh, administration, right as uh, – not Obama, but when Biden started, when they started letting the immigrants flood in here, that was their purpose, was to let them flood in here, flood the red states with these illegal immigrants. Before long, there wouldn't be any red states left. Thank you, George. Appreciate that. But there, there's an alternative argument to make here, and, and I think we're beginning to see some of the uh, some of the fault lines. The, the, the Hispanics are anybody from a country south of America, and I'm not talking about South America, south of America. And I'm talking about Mexico, and I'm talking about all the countries. Um, give, give me another country here. I mean, uh, You're talking about the Central American, yeah, Central American countries, Honduras, South American, and, Honduras, and and Guatemala, and some of these other Ecuador, some of these some of these other southern countries. Um, the ones that come here legally, and 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 are allowed to vote quicker. I mean, how do they feel about this? I mean, if if you dot I's and cross T's, and and bring your family to America, pursuing opportunity. And, you know, a better way of yeah, life. Per the immigration laws. And, and you assimilate and you accept that, um, yeah, 
that there are laws I have to do, that there's a test I got to take, uh, there, there's a way I've got to live my life and conduct myself. And, and you know, it's, it's the American way. When you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do. I don't have to live like white America or black America or Hispanic America, or I don't have to listen to Springsteen or hate Springsteen. I don't have to eat hamburgers or not. I mean, you know, American, the American way of life provides you a lot of opportunity and flexibility in how you choose to conduct yourself. But, but assimilation, understanding the American way, so to speak, is important. And, and I wonder how those who've dotted I's, crossed T's, and, and have come over here in a legal way pursuing exactly what you and I are, they don't look like us. Maybe they don't talk as fluid English as we do. But they've done what is required of them to become an American citizen, a participant in our economy, not living in the shadows. What do they feel about the southern border? That's the most. That, that's the group that matters most to me. I mean, I know how I feel, but I'm a Native American. Am I biased? Am I prejudiced about that? Probably to some degree. But for, the, for, for those who immigrate to America from nations south of America, and they see the craziness that the Democrats are endorsing on the border, how do they feel? How does that affect their voting tendencies? I mean, I think we're beginning to see an increase. I mean, remember Trump's last numbers. I mean, there was a big increase in Hispanics, not so much with African-Americans, but the Hispanic percentage. I mean, I, you know, the, the Republican may run 50-50 with the Hispanic vote in the 2024 presidential. I mean, that'll be interesting to watch. And I think it's all about these, you know, these Hispanics, these um these the South Americans, Guatemalans, uh, Ecuadorians. I mean, I, I think those who come to America assimilating in, in the most legal fashion. It doesn't mean you got to live like I live, but but assimilation is important. I mean, that's a part uh, of becoming an American. What do they feel about the nonsense, the 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 the, the Democrat endorsed nonsense on our southern border? It's chaos. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Build that wall is what Donald Trump said. Build that wall and um and, and make uh, the Mexican government pay for it. Made now, sense to me. Well, but I was reading something. Um, you, you got, I mean, it's 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 seven hundred four. This is one town, one county. I'm sorry, one county law enforcement. You ready? Uh, seven hundred fourteen thousand four hundred ninety two dollars cash seized. Hundred one pounds of cocaine seized. One thousand fifty pounds of marijuana seized. 2,721 pounds of meth seized, 138 pounds of fentanyl seized, 16 firearms seized, six sex offenders, uh, seven gang members, um, you know, 20,000 that they didn't get. I mean, they're estimating what the, um, what the gotaways are, and it's, it, they're predicting or estimating it somewhere around 20,000. So do you believe that everybody they got were the only ones that had fentanyl or marijuana or cocaine? or cash, or guns, or sex offenders, or gang members. It's, it's, it's one of the most, to, to, to me, it's, it's, I don't know how you debate it. I mean, in all honesty, I can understand the argument of big government small. I do. I, I get it. I mean, I think you're dead wrong, and I think Hamilton will. I mean, Hamilton, Jefferson won the battle. Hamilton won the war. But there's going to be a, a, an eventual other war. I mean, I think eventually, as time draws nearer and nearer to our debt demise, People will look back and say, Jefferson was right. I mean, a country that gets that indebted to itself and other governments. You're predicting a debt demise? Well, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, that, that will be our demise. I mean, it'll be debt demise. But, I mean, I, I'll debate that with you. I'll debate what we should prioritize in our spending. I mean, I think that's a fair debate. What should the top marginal rate on high earners be? I mean, that, that, I think 25%. 
You may think 45%. Okay, let's debate that. That's a fair debate. Government's got to have money. It's got to provide services. It's got to do some of the fundamentals of protecting its people, and, and I accept that. But, but how, do you, how do you defend not securing the border? I mean, help me understand. What is the rationale? You can rationalize to me why you believe government needs more money. Well, once again, I think you're wrong, and I think it's dangerous to believe that. But, but I, I can get inside your head and say, I get that. I mean, the mind of a liberal. But, but when, when, when the mind of a liberal, the mind of a conservative, the mind of a pragmatist says that we don't need to have a border, and anybody who wants to come in should be allowed to come in and bring whatever they choose to bring. And that's what we're allowing, guys. I mean, that's not Fox News fodder. I mean, that, that's the reality. And here, here's one county. Once again, 101 pounds of cocaine, 1,050 pounds of marijuana, 2,721 pounds of meth, 138 pounds of fentanyl. That's in one week. I mean, that's the one-week review. Chief Raul Ortiz in, in one of these southern counties or one of these on border counties and, and wow, two agents assaulted. And they're estimating the getaways approximate 18,698 that they didn't get their hands on. How many of those people have fentanyl? How many of those people have cocaine and marijuana? How many are sex offenders? Why don't we secure the border? We can question our capabilities. How good can we be at securing the border? But damn, we should be interested in doing it. Enjoy your week. Excuse me, enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.